Davis has just set a Super Bowl record with 12 catches. He's in motion. Montana. What is up? Welcome to Season 2, Episode number 32 of the Sportscasters. It is September 4th, 2012, one day away from the kickoff of the 2012 NFL season. I am the host of the Sportscasters, Steve Bennett, along with my co-host, Don Russ. What's up, Don? Hey. And uh, we are back after a one-week one break uh, so that I could have my colon cleansed, basically. Yeah, it sounded rough. Yeah, it was quite quite delightful. But uh, all that means is we are 100% ready for football season. And I do want to remind you way back when, two weeks ago now, uh, episode number 31, which you can still find on our website, was a really terrific edition of the Sportscasters featuring interviews with Jane Levy from Grantland and the author of The Last Boy, one of our favorites. Also, Jim Trotter, who had some really great stuff about the AFC and NFC West divisions. And Jeff Perlman, the author of Sweetness, who talked a lot about getting a book to paperback and what that means and what that's like. So we'd like you to still check out Season 2, Episode 31 of the show if you can. Today, we have a busy day that is mostly centered around football. And then we have another podcast that we have to tell you about on Football Nation, which is all about football. So really, it's a football-heavy week here at the Sportscasters. But, duh. Yeah, yeah. what else did you expect, right? So uh, here's our lineup for today. Chris Ballard. Uh, I scold him for being in Buffalo, New York, and not taking the time to find the sportscasters and mentor the sportscasters and maybe do <laughs> an in-studio interview. But Chris Ballard is on the show today because he was in town profiling Gronk and the article that he did on the summer of Gronk and all the silliness surrounded with this kind of meathead-gone NFL great tight end made the cover of the NFL SI preview issue. Nice. So Chris Ballard is on to talk to us about that article and uh, working with Gronk and talking to him and some other things too. We'll talk a little bit about his book he was on not too long ago promoting and what the five months since have been like. Also on the show today, we have Tommy Tomlinson. Now, Tomlinson hasn't been on in like, a month or so, but it's only been a couple shows because we took two weeks off in July. Right. The reason for that is because when he was on the first time, we said, we'll have you back after week one of the college football season so that we can um, talk about what it was like in Dallas where he was for the kickoff of the college football season between Alabama and Michigan which was the huge, they call it the Cowboys Classic, Don, and Jerry treats it like a bowl game, Right. and there's 100,000 people there, and they split the seats, and it's on ABC at 8 o'clock on kickoff weekend for college football, and we're going to get a full report on that and the first weekend of college football 
from Tommy Tomlinson, where he even talks some UB for your sister. <laughs> Great. And then our last guest today is Adam Lazarus. Lazarus. Lazarus is the correct way. Adam Lazarus. And he's going to be joining us to talk about our book club, Book of the Month, Best of Rivals, Joe Montana, Steve Young, and the inside story behind the NFL's greatest quarterback controversy. That's why we led with the Montana to Taylor highlight off the top. That, of course, won the Niners the Super Bowl. Uh, so we have all that to do. Also, we have the first kind of like real deal five on fantasy where we're going to be doing stuff like starts and sits and right. the things that five on fantasy was created to do. Uh, we're also going to update the book club. That'll be real quick right before the Lazarus interview. And uh, also on the show today, we have pick four, which is saying goodbye to the winning pitcher and hello to the worldwide leader as we transition back into point spreads and football. Football, Right. So let's get the show started with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. If we haven't mentioned yet, football season starts this weekend. Actually, it starts tomorrow, Wednesday. And uh, I can't wait. Uh, finally, getting away from... You know what? It takes me back to last season, or the off season, more so. Where last off season, I think we've talked about this before. You just you kind of wondered: Is there going to be a season? Is there going to be a season? And then finally, they're like, "Guess there's going to be a season." You didn't have to deal with the long off season. And in a way, it was almost a blessing because now you had the long preseason that you just wanted to be over with, without any of your key players and your teams getting hurt. And it is finally over with, and we get football early this year because of, uh, what is it, the Democratic Convention they're scheduling yep. around. And I can't wait. Uh, just use this section a little bit to, we're going to talk about a little bit of news here in football. Yeah, I mean, basically what we wanted to do is just, look, at the biggest story this week is that the NFL is starting, and there's all these kind of little things that, build into the start of the NFL season that by themselves are really small nuggets, but together make this really big thing that is the start of the NFL season. It's going to be hard to go any week in the NFL season where there's probably not 10 stories we could talk about, but maybe none of them will be huge. So we might do this. And we might do this a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Perhaps the biggest story of the last week, as far as football goes, is especially if you're a fantasy player, is Maurice Jones-Drew ends his holdout. Yes, he uh, did. Accomplishes nothing. Absolutely nothing. 30K in fines. Right. Which so, they haven't said if they're going to make him pay yet. I doubt it. I mean, I do tend to sympathize more with players in the NFL than any other sport because there's no guaranteed contracts. And when you outplay your contract, you get nothing for it. But if he were to play beneath his contract, he could be cut and not paid the next day, basically. But, I mean, he's got to see what's happened with guys like Chris Johnson. It just it doesn't work. Mike Wallace bailed even sooner than MJD as far as the holdout goes. And You know, I remember back in the 90s when the Bills were really good that 
they'd have some of their stars hold out all the time, and it really wasn't about being upset with the organization or anything they just like didn't that. Want to they play. just didn't want to come to training camp. And play preseason football. And I wonder if you're a guy like Jones Drew, and you're a guy who's used a lot in the offense. If it, if in your mind you say, you know what, this body only has so many miles. Which means that I only have so many chances to earn dollars. And why should I waste my time um, out there yeah. in training camp and take the hits? And even though they limit our activity in the games and things like that, why should I bother? Um, I wonder if it was one of those cases. If it was Jones Drew knowing, yeah, I don't have much leverage here. And, you know, yeah, I'm probably not going to... Uh, get anything out of this but the nice thing is i don't have to take the pounding that's involved with training camp and it's in the long run going to benefit my cause maybe. for trying to earn the most money i can maybe and the nfl would never do this because it'd be counterproductive and they try to i mean they charge full season prices most of the time for preseason games so Oh, it's a joke, and there's but, I mean, these some players, unbelievable stats in Monday morning quarterback, SJ, that we'll talk about on the other show. I wonder how often – I wonder if this will become a regular thing for players. You know what I mean? They had the, the no-off season really last year, or the no-preseason. Especially if, MJ, the, if the teams aren't going to stick to the fines. Right. MJ doesn't strike me as that type of guy. What's the point? He's always been the type of guy that's been known for being a hard worker and a team guy and all that type of thing. But – and even if they did six of the fines, thirty what's thirty grand to him? Right. You know what I mean? Like it's not my money, so it's really easy for me to give it away, but thirty grand to not have to work for what, a month and a half, two months? In the summer. In the summer. And it's not fun work, it's staying in a dorm in a college. Right. I guess as long as these guys come in shape, then what do I care? He if he plays this season like Chris Johnson plays last season, teams are going to sour of this really quickly. Sure. Yeah, for sure. If that becomes a pattern and not just a one-off thing that could be attributed to something else that's more specific to Chris Johnson, no one's going to want right. this. But at you all. mentioned the 90 Bills. If he comes back and plays the offensive equivalent of the way like Bruce Smith would play, Bruce Smith never played in the preseason, and he was one of the greatest ever. So. Like I said, MJD's got a, is known to have a better attitude than that, but why, like you said, if you're a player, especially at the running back position where you have a shorter timeline than everybody else, then why bother? Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, one thing for tomorrow's game, the big game between the Giants and Cowboys. Cowboys. Jason Witten, I guess, is going to take an MRI. They're going to take a look at that spleen, see where it's at in terms of healing and decide if he can play. I think the guy, I love his heart, but he's got to look at the big picture here. Yeah, for sure. It's one game, and it's also on Wednesday, which means if you don't play on Wednesday, like ten days, or you whatever. get all that extra right. time. You don't have to worry about playing until Sunday the following week. So I'd like to see common sense prevail there and have him not suit up, so to speak. Yeah, and boy, if you're a Cowboys fan uh, – it's early to have a lot of injuries, and they have a lot of injuries. They've got a lot of guys that will probably play, but will probably also end up on the injury report, like Des Bryant, Miles Austin. And uh, Nick's for the Giants is going to play. Yeah. But apparently he's going to have to learn to play with a little bit of pain this season. That injury is not 100%. Uh, Bradshaw had a banged-up hand. RG, gonna play. RG3 is going to make his debut in New Orleans. Andrew Luck is going to make his debut in Chicago. 
uh, this weekend. What else is on the slate Peyton for games? Make, Peyton is going to make real his game. first real game. And that's a really good one against the Steelers on Sunday Night Football in Denver. And don't forget that when the Steelers go to Denver, that means no Ryan Clark for the Steelers because of the, I think, the sickle cell problem that he has. He can't play in the higher elevation. Never heard that before. So I think this is at least the third game that he's missed there, including the playoff game last year. Wow. Which is a Steelers fan excuse for why they gave up an 80-yard touchdown <laughs> in the first play because Ryan Clark wasn't there. So Of overtime. Right. right so right, Ryan yeah. Clark won't be there. Two games on Monday night, again, like has been the tradition the last few years on ESPN. Ravens and Bengals kick it off. And then really interesting Chargers and Raiders. Not really interesting because of the game, but really interesting because Chris Berman is calling play-by-play. Really? And everyone's acting like it's just the absolute end of the world <laughs> that ESPN would allow Chris Berman to call one three-hour game at 10.15 Eastern on a Monday night, you know? Yeah. The, the, reaction, g- on, the reaction on Twitter has just been like, oh, he's going to say back, 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 back all the time, and it's going to be ruined like the home run derby. And I'm just like, chill out. Right. It's not. It's not like they gave him – their game of the week. I mean, I guess that is the only game they have all week, but uh, who cares really about that game? That's a, if you're that's, an AFC West fan, it's a big game. That's guess, the but. game you watch as you fall asleep at yeah. the end of a really great weekend of opening football. Is that a tradition to have that be the last game? I mean, I know it has to be a, a West Coast game, but wasn't that the same game last year or two years ago? Um I don't know. I know like they've had chart. They had it's. It's always these West teams. And yeah, there's only be, eight right. of them. So, yeah, I guess you're gonna see a lot of them. But yeah, uh, the four the four twenty four o'clock games. This is kind of confusing, but it's a new kind of a wrinkle. If you play, if you each week either Fox or CBS has the national doubleheader. Mm-hmm. If your network hosts the national doubleheader, your games start at four twenty five Eastern this year. Right. If your game isn't on the network that hosts the national doubleheader, it's still at 4.05. So it would be nice if they changed that stupid rule where with in overtime you have to watch the broadcaster right. sit around and watch that, but I, I'm guessing that's still Instead of rule. changing the rule, they push the time back. So they won't break into the other game. I'll be able to see the overtimes or am I still As gonna... long as it doesn't end by 4.25. As long as it ends by okay. 4.25. Because that was... You're, you're the biggest sport on the planet, and I have to watch people sit. I have to watch people watch overtime. Yeah. As the, but uh, 4.25 p.m. Eastern this week on the main game is on Fox, and it's 49ers and Packers. I'm sure that will be to most of the country. Some people will get Seahawks and Cardinals. And I know there's a third 4 o'clock game, but I can't find it. There are no 4 o'clock games this week on CBS because they'll be – airing the final of the U.S. Open. Maybe there are only two 4 o'clock games this week. Either way, the main one that everyone's going to be watching is going to be 49ers-Packers, which is arguably the best game on Sunday. Yeah, I mean, that could be their biggest test all season. Yeah, they get it so week one. that's where, where we're at. Yeah, also, uh, we kind of did that one together. The NCAA football, or college football, started last weekend. Actually, this past weekend, uh, what big stories did you see? Penn State returned right last week. Penn State returned and lost uh, to Ohio, <laughs> whose quarterback is the son of former Detroit Tigers slugger 
Mickey Tettleton. Okay. Uh, so he's a six foot Drew Brees type kid, and he took Ohio into Penn State to win in football. And don't forget, Ohio also beat Michigan in the NCAA tournament this year. So good year so far for the Ohio Bobcats, the alum of our buddy Peter King. Uh, the biggest story, obviously, from the college football weekend was Alabama just absolutely destroying Michigan and what was built as that a, wasn't close. a huge game. It wasn't close at all. Uh, Denard Robinson, the potentially potential Heisman, Heisman winner, sure. looked pretty bad, especially as a passer throwing the ball down the field. He had absolutely no accuracy and couldn't complete a pass more than five yards down the field. And as Tommy Tomlin will tell you a little bit later about this game, it seemed like Michigan's game plan was a little bit overthought. Uh, so that just wasn't there. Tyron Matthews, we talked about him before. Yeah. Uh, he re-enlisted – well, what's the word? <laughs> he uh, He's a enrolled. Pro. He enrolled. enrolled at LSU even though he can't play. For next play. fall. Oh, for next fall? Yep, for the, for the fall. Oh, okay. I I thought you meant this seat, like this – I read that wrong then. Because I was going to say I admire that he's going to go to the school even though he can't play football. But he enrolled for the following fall. Okay. I should read all the words in the article. (laughs) Uh, Also, Savannah State lost to Oklahoma State 84 to nothing. Uh, At least they came out. Yeah, so that brought up an interesting debate. Yeah, I mean, really, Alabama-Michigan was the game. This weekend, Alabama, Michigan was the game. There's some other good ones. Uh, South Carolina, seventeen to thirteen over Vanderbilt. That was the like Thursday night kickoff game. Notre oh. Dame blew somebody out. Navy, I think. Yeah, from Ireland. Oh, was it from Ireland? Michigan State beat Boise State seventeen to thirteen in a close yeah, game a on game, Friday. So sure. Yeah, it was a good game. Uh, UB. Hung in there as best they could with George, number six Georgia in Georgia, 45-23 final. That's actually not not bad. No. For, uh, they weren't embarrassed. No, that's that's not bad considering some of the scores these ranked teams put up against the – I mean, that Georgia probably saw that game as a – I mean, not that it was all that close, but that's one of those games that you pay Buffalo to come to you because right. you're going to beat them. Yeah, Clemson beat Auburn on a neutral field in Atlanta – uh, 26-19, kind of an ACC team over an SEC team. Clemson kind of showing that they could be a powerhouse this year. They had Te- a nice run last year. Texas struggled at home against Wyoming, but ended up being fine. Same with Oklahoma, who struggled early against Tul- or UTEP and pulled away in the fourth quarter. Neither team looked particularly impressive. And the, really the team that looked most impressive out of the Big 12 is Big 12 newcomer West Virginia, who beat in-state rival Marshall 69-34. to And it really wasn't that close. Marshall scored 14 points in the fourth quarter. So, yeah, college football is off and running. Oh, Florida struggled with Bowling Green. Only beat them 27-14. Bowling Green had their chances, too. Florida State did not struggle with Murray State. They did not. Uh, no huge no huge upsets. No. Uh, the teams that won should have won. A lot of them won by really big scores. A few scares, I guess. Northern Northern Iowa. A few scares. Came back a little bit on Wisconsin. And now this week, 
we don't have one game between teams ranked in the top 25. Great. So it's another week of, well, you know what? Focus on the NFL this weekend. That's right. This is NFL's weekend. Let your wife have Saturday. (laughs) Do what you have to do around the house so that you can enjoy Sunday because it's a week, a week slate of college football games. But we'll talk more about that with Tommy Tomlinson later. Sure. My last thing this week, it sounds like the Washington Nationals, we've talked about this plenty, but it sounds like they're going to stick to their word. And uh, Strasburg's on the clock. Yep. We're looking at September 12th to be his last start. Two more to go. Yeah, two more starts. And to kind of paraphrase their owner, uh, this team is not built for one playoff run. We're built to last, basically. And, boy, in baseball, I mean – that's that's hard to say because this is the first and only playoff run the Washington Nationals have been on, and I know they haven't been a team all that long. But there's some teams that just go on one or uh, look at the uh, the Florida Marlins. They've really made two runs ever, and they yep. just happened to win the World Series both of those times. I mean, that's I think kind of what you have to think if you're Washington, but they don't. So Washington, I think the difference there and just. A fair comparison, but those teams, the owners knew that they were going to tear down those teams the, right. the following year. The Nationals know that they have a plan in place that they feel is a long-term plan, and they think that they really think that they're going to revolutionize the way pitchers coming off this surgery are handled. And hey, if it works, they great. don't want another job at Chamberlain situation. If he comes off this surgery next year, though, and gets injured. And they miss the playoffs or something. They're going to get killed for this. Decision. Yeah, they're going to. It's going to seem like they accomplished nothing. I mean, I I admire. Them. I wouldn't have the balls to do it. I tell you right now. I don't think I would either. I guess I admire them for doing what's best for the player and potentially for the longevity of their team. But I wish we could talk to boy, some Nationals fans about they it. Are, I'd love to know what they think. They're running away with the the NL. They have a six and a half game lead in the NL East. Yeah. So, boy. Uh, Fingers crossed for their sake, I guess, that they're right. All right. My last thing is kind of a sad thing, but I wanted to throw it in here. Uh, Everyone knows we read Joe Posnanski. We like Joe Posnanski. We're disappointed he hasn't been on with us since episode six of season one, but we know we'll get him soon. And uh, with the launch on Sports on Earth, the website that he writes for now, he's kind of the featured writer. He also still blogs, and the blogs appear on Sports on Earth and on his joepoznanski.blogspot.com section. And he wrote a really interesting blog about a guy named Mac Thomason, uh, who's behind one of the most essential baseball blogs, Braves Journal. I'm a Braves fan. I've talked, checked out Braves Journal. Uh, it's been around s- almost as long as since Al Gore invented the Internet. <laughs> uh, it was originally posted on something called CompuServe. Yeah, I remember CompuServe, sure. So uh, it's been around for a long, long time, and it's been one of those things, highly respected. You know, baseball has its own, maybe more than any other sport, its own community out there on the Internet where people like to get into stats right? and advance stats and debate baseball in that way. And unfortunately, a few years ago, Mac was diagnosed with testicular cancer around three years ago, and on Saturday he died. He was 41. Uh, Braves Journal, this is from Poznanski, will go on. 
That was one of his dying wishes. And right away, there was a moment Sunday. The Braves improbably and absurdly scored five runs in the bottom of the ninth, capped by a Chipper Jones three-run home run, no less, to beat the despised Phillies 8-7. to To commemorate the moment, Braves Journal reached back to Mac's thoughts on Chipper's five previous walk-off home runs. My favorite recap is this, when Chipper hit a home run to beat Florida in the 11th. This is from Mac, quote, Chipper finished with three hits and five RBI. I was starting to get worried about him. He was getting on base, not hitting the ball with any authority. Hopefully that's over with. Uh, no, it wasn't like, this is back to Piznanski, no, it wasn't like screaming Giants win the pennant over and over again, but that isn't Braves Journal, that isn't the internet. This was just a moment of hope for a baseball fan, a moment for Mac. Uh, Thomason allowed us to share, even though those of us who don't know him. So, rest in peace, Mac. Uh, God bless the people over at Braves Journal for keeping it going, keeping a guy's dream together. And uh, I'm going to make sure during the Braves playoff run this year, I get a couple posts over on Braves Journal, which you can find very easily now at www.bravesjournal.com. We're going to take a break, and we're going to be back with our first guest today, Chris Ballard from Sports Illustrated. Our first guest today is from Berkeley, California, and is a graduate of Panoma College, where he played basketball and was on the track and field team. He went on to study journalism at Columbia University, where he earned a master's degree. He spent time interning for the Courier Post in Camden, New Jersey, and has written professionally for New York Times Magazine, USA Today, the Los Angeles Times, Men's Health, and other publications. In 1998, he and three other former college basketball players traveled over 31,000 miles to play basketball in 48 states and 166 different cities. Looking to share the experience, he authored a book called Hoops Nation that was named one of book list's top 10 sports books of the year and gained acclaim from publications like the Philadelphia Inquirer. Since he has authored a number of other books, including his new book, One Shot at Forever, A Small Town and Unlikely Coach, and a magical baseball season. In 2000, he joined Sports Illustrated, where today he is a senior writer. He has three times been honored for his work in the Best American Sports Writing Anthology, was nominated by SI for a National Magazine Award, and has occasionally written the magazine's prestigious Backpage column. He is making his second appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to one of the most accomplished and distinguished sports writers to ever appear on the show, Chris Ballard. How are you doing, Mr. Ballard? Good. Thanks for having me on again, Steve. Yeah, we're really excited to have you back. Uh, a couple quick things. One, we loved One Shot at Forever, and I wonder uh, for you now, a couple months away from it, I think it came out in May, right? So it's been about five mm-hmm. mo- four months. Uh, how do you feel about the book and what kind of success it had and how it was received and things like that? It's been great. It's been really uh, you know, amazing experience when you, you're accustomed to writing about a lot of these big time athletes and then you get to write about real people in the small town. Uh, you know, it's great. The books, it sold relatively well and, you know, the people liked it, but what was really cool was seeing the response in the town of Macon where the, the book is based and going back there for a, a book signing. And normally, you know, as any author knows, you're happy to get 10 people at a book signing. It just really is tough to do. Uh, and often they're your friends. But in this case, 
we had uh, over 300 people come out, and uh, it was essentially a third of the town of Macon. And they came out really not to see me so much to see these players and the coach who all came out. So I ended up talking a bit and then doing almost a Q&A with the players and the coach and seeing the response there uh, in this town from, from how people remember these guys from a baseball team 40 years ago. And what it meant to that place was really cool. One of, one of the, I think probably the highlights of my professional career. You say that when you have a when you have a book that goes as well as it sounds like your your last book has has gone and you consider it to be one of the best things that ever happened to you professionally. Does that make you want to jump right into another big book project, or does it make you want to kind of step back and just kind of enjoy the success that this one's had and kind of soak it all in a little bit? Uh, it's sort of it's sort of in the middle. It, it's so exhausting. Uh, to write a book, and then the promotional end of it is equally, if not more, exhausting. Um, so you really just need a time, at least for me, to recharge. And there's certain guys out there that just sort of turn them out, but uh, I need definitely the year to recharge. And then you need another great idea. It's really, you know, you're going to live with this idea for about three years of your life, if not more, from the from the time you start to the time you're done promoting the book. And you got to believe in it. And so, you know, one of the things I learned early on was you really – you have to be rock solid that you want to spend your life living in this little world for that stretch of time. Well, you know, like I said, we love the book and, and we really enjoyed having the, the opportunity to have you on the day that it came out, which was really exciting. And uh, we just felt like we were a part of everything in some small way and really enjoyed that and want to thank you for it. So, uh, But the real reason we had you on today is because a couple of, I think I, I, think I told you this last time that, you know, we do the show on Tuesdays, and at the end of the night, I like to kind of wind down, and then by midnight, I'm able to download onto my iPad uh, the latest issue of Sports Illustrated, and I like to, you know, check out what writers we've had on, what they're writing that week, you know, what Lee Jenkins, who's our boy, what he's doing, you know, just kind of see. And I knew that last week was going to be the NFL preview issue, so I was kind of a little bit excited about that. And then as it was downloading the cover, I just kind of seen Gronk, you know, I, I seen him there. And it was like just a couple of weeks earlier that there had been a AAA All-Star game in Buffalo and uh, they had a celebrity home run derby, which featured such names as like Nick Bakai and other Buffalo legends. But also Gronk was there and he was bombing, I mean, bombing the softball over the legit fence. Uh, and Gronk. Gronk makes us giggle in Buffalo here a little bit because, first of all, we don't have a ton of NFL pros, and we don't usually get NFL pros who are potential future Hall of Famers. And also, what is so interesting about him is he's just he's he's very very unique. And uh, first, I want to ask you. Let's start with this. Where did you get the idea to do uh, a feature story for the NFL preview on? Gronkowski. What drew you to this story? This one was, you know, the majority of stories I do uh, are ideas that I come up with. This one was assigned, and I think it was back in the spring, and our NFL editor approached me. He said, we just haven't had, like, a fun NFL story in a while. You know, go go see if you can track down Gronk and do wild and crazy stuff with him, right? <laughs> uh, and, you know, it sounded interesting to me. I, I worried that, that he's so uh, he's so out there in the world of blogs and Deadspin, and I, I just didn't know if there was going to be any substance to him or to the story. 
And it was really just, you know, just a tiny bit of research pulled up his family and reading some clips about what his dad was like, about his brothers. I realized, okay, that's, that to me was fascinating. If you have three guys, the three brothers playing in the NFL, one in the Anaheim Angels system, you know, he's done now with that. And then a fifth brother at Kansas State who might play in the NFL. That's, that's remarkable. Um, so that drew it to me. It took a long time to set it up. Certainly had no idea if it would work out, if it would run. I was actually at that uh, AAA home run derby. That was where I uh, first approached Gronk. Um, and he was indeed impressive. I think he told me later that he pretty much pulled everything in his back, swinging so hard <laughs> for the fences. But uh, he went about 400 to center and put that one down the line. It was legit out. With the family and, and, and coming to Buffalo, what what kind of it, what kind of impressions did you get of the way these guys these guys Gronk the main Gronk especially are perceived in Western New York? What was your feeling of uh, where these guys where these this family fits in the pantheon of Buffalo athletics? Well, this, you know, he was booed at that home run derby, and that surprised me. I guess I understand the idea that the Bills are so important, but it's not like. Rob had any choice about who drafted him. The Bills actually had a chance to draft him. They didn't. Right. So I think he was a little flummoxed by that. Certainly in the, the Buffalo area, the sense I got is that, especially in that sort of Amherst area, north of there, where the family's from, they are seen as local royalty. But football isn't as big there as it is some other places. Um, and I was surprised there was no... The high school doesn't... You know, they haven't even retired their jerseys in the coach was telling me they're trying to get this jersey retirement ceremony, and the school's not entirely on board with it. So I, frankly, I was a little surprised they weren't a bigger deal. But then again, Rob just had his first huge season last year, and the other Gronkowski brothers are NFL players, so they're not NFL stars. Um, so I imagine as it goes on, you know, especially if Rob continues to play like this in the next five, ten years, it'll become different. But I did receive a really interesting email once the story came out from the Buffalo resident. And what he talked about was how Rob represented to him and that family represented to him a lot about Buffalo. It was for this idea of these working class roots and how a lot of the a lot of what people think of as Buffalo doesn't include those suburban communities, but that's where a lot of Buffalo people are now. Yep. And even the idea of this Father Baker's anecdote, uh, which Gordy was a way that he tried to scare Rob straight if you read the story and he yep. uh this reader wrote in and said, hey, I heard about this you know, mythical Father Baker as well. That was oh, just one of those things you did in Buffalo. Me. Count me. I, I'm on the list. I was told that Father Baker was in my potential future a few times by mom and dad growing up. <laughs> I I always wondered, too, you know, like where this guy was. You know, like the fact that he drove Gronk to some place like on Sheridan Drive, that's perfect because... Father Baker existed only in legend, so he could have taken him anywhere, and any kid in Buffalo growing up would have been like, oh, okay, this is where Father Baker is? You know what I mean? Like, we had no idea, but yeah, yeah that that's legit. That's legit Buffalo parenting right there. We'll take you right to Father Baker, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, I don't know. It, it seemed like as the summer got on, the summer of Gronk, that the Patriots kind of wore out on it a bit, and... I read somewhere that their response to your article was just kind of that they rolled their eyes and, you know, kind of that was about it, you know. Uh, but what sense do you get? The Patriots, you always think of them as this real kind of 
straight-laced organization that you know wouldn't put up with this kind of thing and yet here's this guy that I guess he's so good they kind of have to put up with it. Is, is that what we are seeing here? Or like, how, how do you think the, the Patriots fit into all this? I, um, I imagine it, it, it annoys them to no end <laughs> internally, right? Uh, that's, it's just not part of the, the Belichick way. But he is so good, and he is, once football season starts, it's not like he's slacking off at practice. You know, he doesn't bleed over into the rest of his performance, which is what sometimes happens. Uh, you know, maybe it will at some point in Gronk's career. But he's doing this all on his own time, and he was in great shape all summer, even though he was doing all this crazy stuff. Um, and, you know, for the most part, a lot of this sort of harmless, sort of uh, goofy stuff, too. Um, I don't think it's the image the Patriots like to portray, but I don't think they really have a choice. You know, when I talk to Corey Gronkowski, which is how I kept the access for this story. The Patriots were shutting me down, and I went through his dad. His dad's like, you know, this is, this is a free country. They, they can't control what he does. Uh, you know, I think they try to keep in mind what the Patriots want, but, you know, all the stuff, the ESPN magazine, naked photo shoot, that was all done not through the Patriots, but strictly through Gronkowski's. Um, and I, they, they seem to think, why not have fun? You know, he's young, he's enjoying life. You know, why shouldn't he do this stuff? Which is a pretty valid point. And if you're the Patriots, what's the downside that people focus on something other than football? Well, that's not the worst thing in the world for them to do. They try to treat this the game and and the culture around it like it's the CIA or something. You know, it's just football. You know, and the, this approach that some pro teams have of treating it like that, that's fine if the coaching staff does it. But it doesn't mean the players have to. Yeah, I thought there was a great quote from Rob in the article where he said something like, you know, look at I work out for two days and or for two hours and then I have absolutely nothing to do for the other 14 hours of the day. You know, what what else am I supposed to do? And when I kind of thought about it a little bit and thought about the life of a pro athlete, it's like, yeah, in the off season you have to work out and make sure your body is ready for the next season. That's really what your job is. And if that only takes a couple hours a day, I mean, it wouldn't be fair to ask this kid just to, I guess, play Xbox the rest of the day, right? Especially football. When you think about pro basketball, uh, there's so many skills that can be refined. So you'd want your star point guard playing somewhere doing ball handling drills, playing games that might work on a shot, uh, you know, whatever it is he can improve in his game. Gronkowski's a guy who can get better, but not a whole lot better. I mean, his what he does is based on his physical abilities. So as long as he is getting stronger and staying in shape and staying explosive, all that kind of stuff, it's what you need from him. It's not like, you know, he doesn't study the playbook more during the summer. Uh, you know, he doesn't need to refine his football catching skills. They're tremendous. There's not a lot he can focus on as a purely skill standpoint, to get better. There's not a summer league you should play in, like you'd see with uh, in a winter ball for baseball or summer league for basketball. So really, you know, what is he going to do? He doesn't have a family. You know, he doesn't have kids. He doesn't have a girlfriend or a wife. Uh, he's not the kind of guy that's going to go travel the world. You know, he doesn't have that kind of curiosity. So he's going to hang out with his brothers and have fun. You know, 
another thing in the story that you wrote about that was really interesting to me is kind of a big part of the story surrounded this, that you kind of met him in Boston and you guys went to a birthday party that he was appearing at and he was kind of not into it at first and he was only supposed to be there an hour and from what I read it seemed like maybe he stayed too and ended up having a good time. Tell us a little bit about what it was like to go to a 21st birthday party with Gronk. <laughs> well, it was interesting, you know, he, uh, the drive from the airport, we're in his car service car and because of the traffic and the distance, it ended up being close to an hour. And so I was trying to do some more formal interviewing during that time with a tape recorder and talking. And Rob was clearly uncomfortable. I think he's uncomfortable even just being in that confined space. He's such a such an active guy and he's he's joyful and he's funny and all this stuff. But if you have to sit there and like think and talk, he's very uncomfortable. Uh, at one point I asked him his favorite book. And he thought and he thought and then he just got embarrassed because he couldn't remember one that he wanted to use as his answer. And so he's like, well next question you know, he came back to later and he remembered, oh, it was To Kill a Mockingbird, right, in the 10th grade or whatever. You know, he just, that's not his thing. But he got to the party, he got around people, and then especially when he got around kids his age, I mean, this guy's only 23, so here's always 21-year-olds, and they're doing the things that he likes to do, you know, play flip cup, root, shotgun beers. This is Brock element. Then he was funny and lively, and everybody loved him, and he could be, and he was competing, he was, he was in his zone. I think he spends a lot of his life trying to stay in that kind of atmosphere. Talking to the adults, you know, he wasn't quite as comfortable. They're talking to me at first, not as comfortable. By the end, when we've been hanging out for a while, I think he felt a lot better about it. But, you know, I, I think it's, he is, you know, as it says in the story, he's just a big high schooler who happens to be a 23-year-old NFL star. One thing I'm worried about for him is that, he had a pretty much unduplicated season for a tight end last year. One of those seasons that is going to be ne- close to impossible to duplicate. You know, he set the record for most yards for a tight end, and he had 90 catches and all these touchdowns. And I wonder if his numbers dip a little bit, as maybe they would only naturally do because of how outrageous they were last year, if people are going to turn to this summer of Gronk, quote-unquote, and blame it on that instead of just a natural statistical progression based on this outrageous season he had the year before. Yeah, I think think it's right for what his dad is. I'm talking to his dad about this. He's like, look, you know, the, the downside to him having all this fun this summer is that he has to produce. You know, he's sort of... He's given himself a bit of a target on his own back because people will naturally blame it on having so much fun this summer. But he knows that, and he's all right with it. Um, and that, was, that was his dad's take on it. I think it's inevitable that will happen. You know, that happens with any athlete who ends up, who dares to have fun, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, we always, people probably look at Jeremy Shockey and assume that the reason Jeremy Shockey's not as good as he once was was all his partying. I mean, I have no idea what the correlation is or if there is one, but it's probably the assumption out there. Yeah, and you know, uh, Drew Brees, if he doesn't play as well, it's going to be while well. he sat out in May and June, you know, and we always just make these assumptions, but I don't know that they're necessarily always true, and, and I just worry for Gronk on that. Uh, kind of close it out on Gronkowski, and ag- again, the uh, the article is called The Last Happy Man, 
And uh, it's a cover story in the NFL 2012 edition of Sports Illustrated, which is dated September 3rd, 2012. Um, and you can check it out um, if you get Sports Illustrated on the iPad. You can download it that way. And I think it will appear online in the next couple of days, right? When the new issue comes out, they put the old stuff online. Is that correct? Yeah, I don't know the policies. Now I was sort of surprised, but theoretically it should be out sometime this week um, on the web. But uh, it's a bit of a bummer for us as writers because people don't get a chance to see your stuff uh, unless they get the magazine and the app, which is great. Obviously, we want people to, to buy those things, but you know, the, the ability of people to read it if they don't have those is hindered. Well, why don't we, uh, one last thing before I let you go, and it's this, you know, when I read your bio earlier, and I think maybe before I had this, before we talked, I had this perception of you, this guy who's a great writer, but he writes mostly about basketball, played basketball, has this incredible book about playing basketball in 48 states, and then we've had you on twice and we haven't talked a word of basketball. Instead, we talked about this great baseball book that you wrote. And today we had a little fun talking about this really cool article you wrote about this 21 year old kid from Buffalo who plays football and had a summer named after him. Uh, what I mean, what I, what I want to ask you is, do, do you feel like you are be evolving into like, a more well-rounded sports writer than you were maybe five years ago? Do you feel like you can take any assignment now at any time and turn it into a great magazine article and then maybe even a great book? Yeah, I think you have to have to think that way. I mean, I covered the NBA at SI, but I stopped probably six years ago now. So it's been a while, and I do all the film with all along form now. And so you really... When I'm looking at the stories, it doesn't matter what sport it is, as long as it's a compelling story. You know, so I've written about you know pigeon racing and uh, and rowing and wrestling, um, and you know Jake Plummer, and you know, so the basketball has actually become a pretty small portion of it. I still love doing it. I got a chance to write about Tim Duncan and, and Kobe Bryant last spring, um, but yeah, so you have to see every story as what's the arc of this story, uh, what's the theme of the story, why do readers care, how will it affect them. Will they remember it? And, you know, at SI, it just has to be related to sports. It doesn't even have to be about sports. You know, the story could be taking place via a baseball season or something like that. But the story I did on Dwayne Dedman last year, who's the uh, of his witness at uh, USC, that story was about parenting and faith and choice. It wasn't about basketball. And what I've got one I'm working on that's coming out in about three weeks um, that is about grief and loss, even though it's theoretically a high school baseball story. So that's definitely part of the evolution. One of the things that helped me is, you know, when I was 23, my life was defined by, you know, I played college basketball, I played basketball all the time, and it was one of the things I loved, I thought about all the time. Got older, got married, had kids. Our world really expanded, and you become a more mature person, which I think helps you as a writer. And you start to see elements of stories that have nothing to do with sports, and those have appealed to me more the older I've gotten. As the NFL season starts tomorrow, what will you be looking for as potential things that can become stories that would interest you along the way you answered the last question? And I don't just mean in the game Wednesday, but I just mean in the season in general. Like, What things do you look for as the games and the season plays out that could turn into 
an article that you'd be interested in spending time to turn into one of these great long-form pieces in SI? The NFL is a very tough sport to report. I mean, like, the access I got to Rob was only available in the offseason, and it took me three months and a lot of maneuvering to get that. So it's very difficult. I, I think if you look at the fringes of it, those guys who aren't the marquee players, and you find a story there, um, that could be interesting. If you look at older players, guys who have been around, they have perspective. Often that's where you're going to find better stuff. I mean, I'd love to read a story about Peyton Manning, but you'd need full access, and you'd want to be there. you want to understand. I mean, that's a, a great drama of the season, right? Elway, Manning. You know, the Tebow stuff doesn't interest me quite as much. Um, it's going to be so overcovered. Oh, yeah. Uh, I had a story idea last year we ended up not doing. Well, I thought it would have been fascinating to go and interview every quarterback who had been the second guy behind Tim Tebow from grade school on up. Mm-hmm. What was it like to be Tebow's backup to see all this in action? And then flip it because at the start of the season, he was the, he was the, the third fan. And then yeah. what would it be like to be the guy in front of Tebow? I think that could still work as a story idea. That's the kind of thing I would think about to find ways to get at a subject that big, but through other voices. Love it. Uh, it's Chris Ballard. You can find him on Twitter at SI underscore Chris B-A-L-L-A-R-D. Uh, the story we talked most about today is, um, what was it called? The Last Happy Man? Is that what? The Last Happy Man. I'll tell you, I was hoping they would title it Rob Gronkowski as a hangover because uh, any readers who are <laughs> Familiar and their journalism nerds will notice that I modeled the first section after the Frank Sinatra has a cold story, which Gates Lee's wrote for Esquire, uh, and it's pretty much the most famous nonfiction magazine story ever. But I loved making the obviously ridiculous analogy between Frank Sinatra's voice and the power of it, and Rob Gronkowski and his uh, alcohol tolerance. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much for the time today, Chris, and uh, enjoy the start of the football season. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Thank you. It's time for a new segment we've created called Five on Fantasy. With the first pick, Adrian Peterson, Drew Brees, Steven Jackson, Miles Austin, Leonet Ocho Cinco, TJ Hushmanzada. I once tricked my brother Greg into picking Roy Williams about nine rounds after he had actually been selected. <laughs> I don't care. I'm just trying to win me a fantasy football league. All right, we are back. Want to thank our guest, Chris Ballard, for being on the podcast today and talking a little Gronk and NFL football and books with us. So, you heard the open, five on fantasy, and it's fun time. By now, you should have had your draft. Yeah, unless it's tonight. Picked your players. You got your team. You got your lineup getting ready here for week one. And... uh we're going to get back to what the format of this is going to look like most weeks. On most weeks, we're going to give you some starts. We're going to give you some sits. We're going to update the listener league. And occasionally, not every week, we're going to talk about the expert league that we are in for a second time. And really to call it an expert league is somewhat loose. <laughs> um, it's not like with Matthew Barry and Nate Rabbits and... Michael Fabiano and and but that. it's a deep it's a sixteen but it's a team sixteen league. team league it's deep and it's a chance for us to give a different perspective when we talk about things 
because it's so deep. And most of the time when we talk about things, we're going to talk about 10 or 12 team leagues. You know, our listeners league, I think is a 10 team league. So when we talk about that, that's only going to give us a chance to talk about. So we like using that league to kind of bring up some things for the deeper players. And then uh, we're going to do some other stuff now and again that will kind of fit in towards the end. Sure. So let's start off right away, Don. Give us your sits for week one. All right, my sits for week one, I don't love my first one because in my two uh, pay leagues, he's my starting quarterback. He just kind of happened to fall to me, and that's Tony Romo. Um, I talked a little bit right off at the beginning of the show about how there might not be a more banged-up team than the Cowboys. And, I mean, we haven't even played a real game yet. Everyone on their offense seems to be on their injury report. Even if they're probable, they're dinged up. And they play the Giants. Uh, The Cowboys have a notoriously bad offensive line. The Giants have a notoriously good defensive line. And it just sounds like an ugly matchup. I mean, I hope... Well, I hope this one's wrong because I'm going to have to start him in at least one league. But I got Tony Romo as my quarterback sit. And, again, I'm not, I won't say this every single week, but my sits, it's relative. I mean, if your backup is uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick, you're still probably starting Tony Romo this week. Right. But just kind of temper your expectations. And, you know, one thing I wanted to say with my starts this week, especially in week one, don't overthink your lineup. Right. Start the guys that you drafted to be starters. Right. Your real debates this week should be maybe a flex spot, maybe a third receiver. But mostly it should be real easy to plug your lineup in with the guys that you you chose to pick to be the starters at those positions for your team. And for quarterback, it's difficult because, you know, okay, let me tell you a guy to start at quarterback. Well... Everyone's starting Breeze. Everyone's starting Rodgers this week. Everyone's starting Newton, Brady, Rivers, Manning, Stafford, right? All those guys are starts, right? Uh, definitely. There, there's no reason not to start them. Uh, so I looked deeper and thought, okay, let's say for some reason. See, because this is the thing. I can't say, let's say you have and he's out this week. <laughs> everybody's in. You know what I mean? So let's say you waited a long time. You're in a man's league draft and you need somebody to put in and you're not sure what to do. I'm just going to throw Russell Wilson out and say, give him a chance. <laughs> Because yeah, week one started as a quarterback. Uh, week brutal. one started quarterback. I mean, I don't know Everybody's what to tell you. Uh, everyone's going to start their starter, right? So the closest thing to a scenario that you might have a coin flip uh, at one of my pay league drafts, my brother Greg drafted RG three. Okay, first that was his first quarterback. Okay, in the next round or maybe two rounds later. He drafted Philip Rivers. Okay, I like Rivers better this week. I think I probably do too, and I probably like Rivers better for the season. But I asked Greg, I go, how many times do you think the guy you drafted as your backup is going to be your starter this year? Like He's going to have a lot of decisions there. Like Griffin might have some Cam Newton-like upside. Right, but, but Griffin's just, got a tough matchup week one. Not because the Saints have a great defense, but because the Superdome is a really tough place 
to make your debut in the, in the National Football League. Right. So, and Rivers has Oakland. Has Oakland on a Monday night. Yeah. So, I, mean, I he, like that matchup. Looking match at his lineup right better. now, he currently has Rivers in there, but it, that's one of those weird scenarios where he waited on quarterback, ended up taking Robert Griffin, and then Philip Rivers was still lying around a round or two later, so he decided to pick him up and now we might have some decisions to make. Yeah, maybe you waited a long time and you ended up with Jay Cutler and Josh Freeman. That's a little closer. I okay, still go Cutler. Those this guys week, are probably. close. This week I go, I go right? Cutler. Yeah. Yeah. Uh with him having Indy. Uh maybe you waited a long time. You have Roethlisberger and Manning. Eli. Yeah. Or I mean Peyton. I'd still I'd I'd go Peyton. I think I, that's the guy you drafted to start. I definitely have been in leagues where I could have ended up with like Roethlisberger Shaw. Roethlisberger, Romo, like both guys had kind of dropped together. And those are tougher choices. My sit at running back this week is Maurice Jones-Drew. Look, I know he's a first-round pick. You're probably really not going to sit him, but they've already said he's probably only going to get third-down carries. I have uh, Rashad Jennings kind of taking a late flyer, maybe that MJD would stick to his guns and hold out. I'm still going to start him this week because if I'm going to get a week out of him and he does anything, it's going to be this week. Other than that, it's just the basic, again, you're probably starting MJD if, because if you have him because you have to. But I'm not starting Ryan Matthews or Peterson this week if I have him, regardless of if they're going to play. Those, just give it a week. Those two guys, i Give I'm it a week wait. and wait and see. I like that attitude. And uh, the start that I had for running back was Richard Jennings. They've been really clear that he's going to get the start. It's got a nice matchup. He's prepared for it all off season. Yep. And this team loves to run the ball. Um, I think he's a great start this week. And with that said, I don't know if he's a great start any other week. He, maybe not. The thing I was going to say, Maybe one though, more. Is MJD. I love MJD. But Rashad Jennings, in limited action last year, averaged about five yards a carry. He's a good back. So the, the thought that they're not going to take a little bit of load off MJD, it's kind of like the C.J. Spiller. C.J. Spiller in those weeks when Fred Jackson was hurt was very productive. His average before that was something like three touches a game. There's no way the Bills give C.J. Spiller three, only three touches a game this year. I think Rashad Jennings might maintain a little bit of value for the rest of the year. I'm not Could gonna be drop, like a Ben Tate type? Sure. I'm not yeah. going to drop him next week or anything just because MJD's back. I'm going to stash him for an MJD. If he has a slow start or gets injured because he hasn't been working with the team, uh, I mean, if I had to bank on it, I would say MJD has a better year, but just I'd hang on to Rashad Jennings. I like Reggie Bush a little bit this week, too. Uh, he's another guy that you maybe didn't draft to start, but I think he's got a good matchup and could be a good play this week. And even though we said stick away from uh, Peterson and Ryan Matthews. Matthews and Jones Drew, don't worry about Charles. No, you I got wouldn't him. Either. Get him right in. He's, he was hurt he's week two. To he's been yep. off almost an entire entire year. Him, you can get in right away. Yep, I, I almost I start him in a pay league this year with, or this week without worry. Uh, my wide receiver sit kind of along the same lines. I'm probably sitting Mike Wallace, and I shouldn't say sitting. I'm starting Mike Wallace. I'm starting Miles Austin, but I'm not doing it totally worry free. They're both banged up. They both have. Tough matchups. Denver's defense was pretty solid last year. Mike Wallace has gotten very little work with the team. Miles Austin, it's all about the injury. He's had, he's been with the team all off season. But uh, 
again, you're probably starting him, and I wouldn't get cute and start like a Titus Young over either of them. Again, week one starts and sits are tough because you start your studs. Right. So finding guys to sit. One thing to remember, Kenny Britt did get handed down a one-week suspension, so take him out of your lineup for sure. He's a sit for sure. Yeah, and uh, that <laughs> it's funny you say that because my start was going to be uh, Nate Washington. Uh, Kenny Britt not going to be there this week. Uh, Nate, Nate Washington slash Kendall Wright, Kendall Wright I think, yeah. will be the two guys that will benefit most from this. If you drafted in a, later in the draft, if you drafted either Kendall Wright as an upside guy or Nate Washington as kind of a safe depth kind of a guy, this could be a week to use them with Kenny Britt being out. So that's why I wanted to suggest those two guys because there's not a lot of spaces where guys from later in the draft are going to make a huge impact this week. But that's a spot where it could be. Another guy I didn't add because I felt like it was kind of a no-brainer, but Randy Moss is going to have to show me something first. So I'm sitting Randy Moss. Uh, People have suggested that maybe, like with New England, he didn't play much in their preseason or do much in their preseason when he was first there. And then he came, then the regular season came, and they had one of the greatest years of all time. Uh, He's got to show me that first in San Francisco. Chances are you drafted him in your one of your real late rounds, so you're not worried about it anyway. But guys like that, make him show you something. Plaxico Burris, remember he's not on a team. So if you drafted him for upside, he hasn't landed anywhere yet, so make sure he's not in your lineup. Another guy who I think could be a, a good flex or number three wide receiver play this week is Justin Blackman. Sure. Uh, he got off to a little bit of slow camp start, missing a couple of days of camp, but... Good in the Him and Gabbert have looked good together. So if he's a guy you drafted, I don't think you need to be afraid. I don't think he's a guy you need to say, let's see him do it for a few weeks. If he's on your team and you're you're deciding maybe between him and, oh, geez, Greg Little as a flex or number yeah. three in a, in a deeper league, I, I, like, I like Justin Blackman this week a little bit. Sure, I agree with that. All right, so. That's starts and stits for this week. Next piece of business for Five on Fantasy is on Sunday. We had the second annual uh, Sportscasters Listeners League, and I want to thank all the listeners who took part in the league. Uh, We brought just about everyone back as far as I can tell. We had to make one change uh, where we were able to bring our buddy Ford Kendrick in the league to fill in for our former super fan JT Brawley. Okay. Uh, who couldn't do it this year for whatever reason. Uh, seems like I don't know. It went pretty well. Don, you were a couple minutes late to the draft. <laughs> you had family over. Yeah. I don't what, think we did it last week. Last year, I don't think we did it over the holiday weekend. Uh, I know we moved it once or twice too this year. So there was a little bit of confusion about that. I was surprised when I was 10 minutes late that we were like six rounds in. Already, yeah, it but... went super fast. NFL.com does not mess around. They don't let you pause it. The There was a couple people, like four people who were late. So like their picks were just going. And, right, right. You know, so that... I ended up with the first overall pick. I got Arian Foster. Can't complain about that. Um, I think my second round pick was Greg Jennings and my well, either way, back-to-back picks were Greg Jennings and Andre Johnson. I don't hate that. Uh, I probably would steer clear of Johnson, but to get him that late, he's got number – I mean, if Calvin Johnson's a no-brainer number one and Andre Johnson's got number two receiver potential if he could stay healthy, 
So I don't mind that. I probably would have gone tight end a little bit earlier than I did. But I ended up with Jacob Tammy, which I'm happy with. When you started drafting, did you get a guy in the later rounds that you're excited about? You know what? A lot of the guys I liked kind of for their upside were all still available. Some of them, I mean, you kind of have to reach for, and they're deeper sleepers. But I like Ryan Williams of Arizona because I just be, more because I don't like Beanie Wells and whoever else is there. And Williams was kind of a highly touted rookie last year before he got hurt. Uh, I ended up with David Wilson on every single team I had this year. I don't know much about him, but I know they drafted him early, and I know Ahmed Bradshaw is always hurt. I ended up with Randall Cobb, who I think has a lot of upside. He does. And Titus Young. So if Titus Young can beat out Burleson for that number two spot, playing across from Calvin Johnson is a pretty nice, sweet position for a receiver to be in. So I got a lot of upside guys. I drafted late. Uh, I think I had the last pick in the first round, and – First pick in the second round, and I drafted Matt Forte and Chris Johnson. Uh, next time it was my turn, I picked Adrian Peterson. He's, you know, he's still there. And just I, I've actually picked him and Percy Harvin, so two Vikings. And <laughs> waiting as long as I did on wide receiver, I was happy to be able to get Harvin. Yeah. Um, and I got Colston, and I'm happy about that, and Macklin. So I think I have like yeah, that's not bad at all for a PPR. I like the guys that I that I got there. Uh, Brandon, Brandon Pettigrew is my tight end. Uh, like Peyton that. Manning's my quarterback. I'm not going to play Peterson this weekend. I'm going to wait and see a week. So Stephen Wrigley is going to fill in for him. What uh, do you think your weakest position is right now? Um. Well, obviously Peyton's a question. Yeah, mine's running back, and it's not close. Like I'm starting Pierre Thomas. You get two slots here. For running back, and then we have two flex spots. Two flex spots, yeah. So it's a little bit deeper in this league, and I'm going to end up starting four wide receivers. So, I mean, it is PPR, but, I mean, that I'd probably prefer to have one of those slots with a running back, and this week I'm only going to have Foster and Pierre Thomas. So, I mean, granted, I have the best running back in the league potentially, but... As far as my bench, I was happy to get Kendall Wright. Uh, a little upside there. Uh, Kobe Fleener is one of my later picks. He's my backup tight end. Um, could have a really good... Connection with Andrew Luck, you know, going right, into right. the season. Uh, Austin Collie is a guy that I heard Luck had had a little chemistry with, and I like that. Colson can get banged up now and again, so I did grab Lance Moore as a little Colson insurance. I think he's the guy that's going to benefit most from Meacham not being in town, and he seems really healthy this year. And uh, Peyton Hillis is a guy I liked in a lot of leagues just because I think he can definitely have he that Thomas definitely Jones have role. The Thomas Jones role, and maybe even do it better. And he's away from the Madden yeah, curse, younger, right? And Alfred Morris is a guy who's stuck in shenanigans, right? <laughs> sh- 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 shenanigans, or however you say it. But he came highly, con- uh, highly recommended by a Redskins fan in the league. My receivers are super deep. Looking at it, uh, I've got Greg Jennings, Andre Johnson, Deshaun Jackson, and Demarius Thomas. If Deshaun Jackson plays like he is interested in playing football, then my fourth receiver is Demarius Thomas, who people think have a lot has a lot of upside with Peyton Manning. So, I mean, I guess right now we'll do a quick start sip for you. Would you start in a flex spot, Ben Jarvis Green Ellis, over either Demarius Thomas or Deshaun Jackson? Maybe Deshaun Jackson. Maybe, but not... Not the not Thomas. No, I want to I want to see. I'd want to. I I I think 
You want the receiver Peyton Sorensen? Yeah, I think Pey- I think Peyton's going to want to go out there and prove that he can sling this ball all over. Sure. I think the game plan there is to throw 50 times. Yeah, and so I think a lot. Of, I wouldn't want to sit any of Peyton's receivers if I drafted him. I like my receiver depth. I like my upside at at the running backs I have on my bench right now. So as long as I can get solid production out of Pierre Thomas, who I looked today was like the number twenty one running back or something in the league last year. He wasn't all that bad. Chris, jo- in a PPR Chris Johnson is the guy I'm worried the most about. Yeah, I don't know why he just scares me. But well, we we talked about that early on when we started doing fantasy talk on this show. When we'd have fantasy experts on, we'd ask them, why is it just assumed that Chris Johnson's going to return to form when guys like Deshaun Jackson is not assumed with that? So, yeah, I didn't end up with Chris Johnson in any of my leagues. I thought I might, and I would have had to make a decision, but I did not. So I guess hopefully I was right. All right. Um, Kind of moving on a little bit to uh, another league. Uh, yeah, the experts. The league. experts league. We were lucky enough. Uh, Jay Clemens uh, is a guy who uh, was kind enough to have us in his league last year, and he welcomed us back this year. And what's cool about these, he calls them his fantasy philanthropist leagues, is that they're sixteen teamers. So it gives us a chance to, through this team, kind of talk to you guys in this segment about a deeper Deep league. leagues, right. You know, and just to kind of how it played out for us, we had a really late pick. I think it was 13. It might have been 14. We got Peyton Manning. Uh, DeMarco Murray was our first-round pick. And Grankowski was our second-round pick. Donald Brown's our backup running back. Our starting wide receivers are Colston and Garcon. Uh, Justin Blackman is our flex, and we have the Titans D with Rob Baronis, although last year in this league, and I'm sure again this year, we're going to really look at using waivers to try to maximize that position, those positions each week. Yeah. Because we're not afraid to keep that position moving as much as possible. You almost you have to. Yeah. Unless you get really lucky in a 16-team league. Especially, I mean, we got a 16-team league with about, what, we got their nine starters or so and a bench of about another nine. So, I mean, that's about 300-some-odd players gone. I handcuffed both of our running backs uh, just because in a league like this, there's no depth at running backs. Right. There's no picking, like, a third guy who's a starter somewhere unless you go running back, running back, running back. Uh, right. So I did use the handcuff strategy here, which I'm not crazy about. Uh, Elshon Jeffrey is a guy that I picked up later in the draft that him and Jonathan Baldwin both as potential upset or upside guys. I think there's a lot of upside with a guy like Elshon Jeffrey because who's the number two there right now? Devin Hester? And that it's, really yeah, hasn't it's a, worked. It's a scattered group of guys that you, you can never necessarily trust. So if he comes in and ends up being a guy that gets a lot of chemistry – right away with Jay Cutler, Cutler that yeah. could be a guy that we could start maybe even over Gar- Garson or Colson if it turned out to be something that good, you know, but yeah. it's a tough, it's a, it's a, it's a completely different world when you're d- dealing with 16 teams. I'll tell you that much. And it's a tough thing. And we'll reference this league now and again. Um, if we need to uh, talk about the later, later and deeper side of fantasy football. Absolutely, and the last thing we're going to do this week is talk about any last-minute things. The only thing I could really think about is uh, know your schedule. 
I'm actually running a league this year, and I see people making waiver moves already. And I'm not necessarily sure I would have made any moves yet, but they're available. <laughs> and I forgot when I started them, I guess. Apparently I right. started them the week bef- the, before the season yeah, started. Yeah, know your league rules, I think, is the bigger part of that. Yeah. Know, make sure you read the settings part in your league. Know the rules. Know where you are drafting, what you need to or excuse me, not drafting, but no, like Don said, with waivers. Uh, make sure your starting lineup is correct. Make sure you know if you're PPR or not PPR, if it's five points for a touchdown for quarterbacks or what. Just make sure you know all the rules going into it. Make sure you remember that every year this – or every week this year there's going to be a Thursday, Thursday night game. game. Yep. This week it's going to be a Wednesday. Wednesday game. There's a lot of fantasy points flying around in tomorrow's game probably, so – yeah, I mean, just short and simple, get back into fantasy football mode because now the games count. Last thing I wanted to say was just remember that you do this to have fun. <laughs> yeah. Some of the leagues, sure, there's there's some money put down on it. In some instances, it's big money. So maybe in those cases you can't have as much fun as a league with 10 people from your family that's for nothing. Right. I understand that. But – Remember that you do this ultimately to have fun and play that way. You know, if you got tickets on Sunday to, to the home opener for, I don't know, the Bills, and you got Fred Jackson on the team, and you're trying to decide if you should start Fred Jackson or if you should start an equivalent running back. I can't think of a great example right now. It's Reggie Bush. Okay. Start Fred Jackson. Kind of Richardson, maybe, somewhere along there. Yeah, start Fred Jackson because you're going to go to the game and you can cheer him on and have fun. And if he scores, you can high-five your buddy and say, it's my fantasy guy. Sure. You know, just have fun with it. That's all I wanted to say. Absolutely. I second that 100%. Okay. Uh, that's it that's for it. Five on Fantasy this week. We're going to take a break and come back with Tommy Tomlinson from SportsOnEarth.com. <laughs> Our next guest today is from Brunswick, Georgia, and is a graduate of the University of Georgia. He spent 23 years as a reporter and columnist for the Charlotte Observer. He has been named the best local columnist in America by The Week magazine and was a Pulitzer Prize finalist in 2005. He has recently signed on with USA Today Sports Media Group and Major League Baseball Advanced Media to be a part of the recently launched Sports on Earth website that also features the writing of Joe Piznanski. His article on Tumor's Oaks was recently selected by Michael Wilbon to be part of the Best American Sports Writing Anthology, and he is making his second appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the very talented Tommy Tomlinson. What's up, Tommy? Oh, I'm doing great, man. Just back from uh, just back from Texas watching the, uh, the curb stomping that Alabama put on Michigan. Yeah, we usually don't... I don't know, I, I, I always feel like it's great that guests want to come back, but we usually don't kind of do it as quickly as we did with you. But when we talked last time, we talked a little bit about maybe getting a little bit of perspective from you. We knew you were going to that big game. It kind of looked like on TV, like I was watching a bowl game. Is that, did it kind of have that feel inside the stadium, at least say pregame? Yeah, I think so. You know, part of it was, it was at a neutral site. 
um, uh, it, down at, at you know, the Cowboy Stadium, Jerry Jerry World, uh, down in Texas. And so the stadium was split half and half with fans. And so, you know, one section was Michigan and one section was Alabama. And they were roughly equal. There were probably a few more Alabama fans, a few more Alabama fans, but not a, a lot more. And it, yeah, it did have that feel of, you know, um, things that were roughly equal. And that feeling lasted until they started playing. And then after that, it wasn't equal anymore. Yeah. I read, I read your column today, uh, your top 10 column, and, and you wrote a little bit in there about your dislike for the preseason polls. And I wonder, it, Michigan obviously was outmatched in the game. Were they a little overhyped in the preseason in terms of that being a true two versus eight game, or is maybe Alabama that good? Well, I, I think Michigan was probably a little overhyped because of this game, because people knew they were getting ready to play Alabama, and people want somebody to challenge the SEC. I mean, it's no fun having the same few schools win every year. And so I think there was a little bit of, you know, before the game, um, hopefulness that Michigan would be stronger than they were. And so I think that helped sort of boost their ranking. But once they were good last year, and Denard Robinson was back, and so they, and they still may turn out to be a good team. Uh, I think people underestimated how good Alabama was. Um, and I was a mark about that. You know, they lost. I put in my story today on the top ten list, you know, that they, they had five of the first 35 players taken in NFL draft this year. And so they, had, you know, they lost Trent Richardson, key running back, lost all these guys on defense. And it didn't seem to make any difference. You know, they, they look, at least on one game, um, uh, evidence to be just as good as they were last year. And that should be pretty terrifying to the rest of the country. I, I think Alabama might beat whoever we think would be eight in the country at this point. Maybe not during the end of the season, but if some other team had been elevated in that spot. Um, I, I guess what I'm saying is, I'm not sure Michigan isn't the best team in the country. I just think Alabama is really, really good. Uh, one last thing about Michigan, and it's specifically about Denard Robinson, who really struggled in the game. I think Michigan had a, a perfect game plan, or uh, excuse me, Alabama had the perfect game plan to kind of control him. Where do you, what does he have to do to, you know, I hear people say, and it's kind of frustrating, like I hear people say, well, he's completely out of the Heisman race now, you know, forget that. One game against maybe the number one team in the country that wasn't good. He he's out of that talk and all that. It's almost just as frustrating as him being in the talk before there was even a game. But where do you think this kid kind of goes from here? Well, I think this game it may be an outlier. Um, first of all, because Alabama has a really good defense, obviously, and secondly. I got the feel that Michigan kind of overthought this game. You know, um, you know their, their most success last year, or much of it anyway, came from Robinson running the ball in the read option. And I know Alabama's defense were designed to stop that, but there were, you know, for the vast majority of the game, Robinson either handed off or 
but he kept throwing deep and inaccurately. You know, he did hit on a couple, you know, late in second quarter, early third quarter, but by then the game was long over. And I just couldn't believe how many times he dropped back and threw deep in that game. And I think they just may have may have overthought um, what they were trying to do. And instead of playing to their own strengths, they tried to play against what they thought were Alabama's weaknesses. And, and that also was Michigan's own weakness. I guess what I'm saying is I would have liked to see Michigan just do what they do, run that option, let Robinson take it, and see what they would have done there. I think it surely would have been better than what they ended up with. You know, a lot of people coming out of this game, another thing that's been talked a lot about is what a great stadium that would be for the future first uh, national championship game. You agree, disagree, think that would be a good place to hold the 2014 championship? Well, I think it's, you know, Dallas can be kind of cold in the wintertime. You know, the Super Bowl a couple of years ago showed that, but... As far as the game itself is concerned, it's indoors. It's a gigantic place. It's just, you just don't get a sense of the scope of it until you're really inside it. Even having been in a lot of college football, you know, big college football stadium, this place just looks epic. And obviously, it's brand new and shiny. It's got all the amenities and that sort of thing. I think it would be a great place for a game in the future. And certainly, I think they're bidding on the, um, Champions Bowl, that SEC Big 12 game that's going to be coming up in the next couple of years. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if they throw their hat in the ring for the national championship. If they do, I wouldn't be surprised if they get it down the road. It's it's, um, it's a good place to have a game. I mean, it's, it's a great stadium. It's pretty easy to get to. They've got the parking and all that stuff figured out pretty well. And so if you're going to the game, um, it's a pretty good experience to get there. And then the game, you know, the You know, next week, or next up for Alabama is Western Kentucky, and we're not going to learn much about how good Alabama is in that game, but I wonder, when is the next spot on the Alabama schedule that maybe we'll get to learn a little bit more and know if Alabama was the team that we saw dominating a good Michigan team, or if we saw a good Alabama team destroying a bad Michigan team? No, in two weeks we'll know. Um, Alabama goes to Arkansas on the 15th, and Arkansas is the team. I wrote about them a couple weeks ago. I think they have the talent to win the national championship. Now, they had all their you know, drama with Bobby Petrino leaving in the spring, and John L. Smith has come in to replace him as head coach, and I don't think anybody believes that John L. has good a coach, especially on game day, as Petrino was, so that may take some of the edge off them, that, that matchup, but Alabama has to go to Arkansas. Arkansas is potentially really good. Um, I would say if Alabama just shuts down Arkansas and, and dominates, then that's pretty terrifying for the rest of, the rest of college football. Um, if it's close, or if Arkansas wins, which I think is perfectly possible, then that throws everything back back into the open. And back, you know, as it was just a week ago when people, you know, Alabama was at number one in either the AP Bowl or the coaches' ball. 
you know, USB and LSU would be number one. Right. There. And so, you know, I still think it's wide open. But if Alabama really puts a hurt on Arkansas, then the next month or so, they're going to be the team that everybody's worried. Well, obviously Alabama's victory was the biggest kind of eye-opener of the weekend. What else caught your eye of the first full weekend of college football? What are the things impressed you, disappointed you, etc.? I think there were two or three teams that played um, games that weren't pretty, but were tough wins, and the kind of win you got to get if you're going to make any kind of noise during the season. Michigan State beat Boise, um, which is probably down this year because they lost Kellen Moore and Doug Martin, their great right up, quarterback and tailback. But Boise has been sustained good for, for quite a while now. And to beat them, even in, at Michigan State, I think is a big deal. Um, Clemson beat Auburn. Auburn, you know, obviously not because they were when Cam Newton was there, but still a, a pretty good quality SEC team. And Clemson won that game on a neutral field without Sammy Watkins, the receiver who everybody thought going in was going to be Clemson's best player. Um, and then Andre Ellington, the running back, went for like, I think, 231 yards. And there were these two incredible runs where he got sort of knocked down and went on one hand for a while and then got back and finished the run. Um, and I think the third team that played a tough game, well, two more. Virginia Tech last night over Georgia Tech in a game that was really ugly right. until the fourth quarter and then had some drama in it. And South Carolina beat Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt's going to be a tough out this year at Vanderbilt. And um, and South Carolina is one of those teams that always has some big stumble against the lesser team every year. And I thought it was going to be that first game, but they, they got through it. So those four teams all won pretty tough game without playing their best. And I think that's something that they can build off from the We talked a little bit about the absurdity of off-season polls, and Oklahoma was ranked number four, I think, on both polls, and they really struggled on the road at UTEP. And Landry Jones, who, for whatever reason, continues to get Heisman Trophy talk, just can't seem to put together four quarters on the road. He, He looks great in Norman, but when you get him out of Norman, it seems like the kid just can't just can't do it. What What do you? If you're a Sooner fan, do you overreact, underreact, or is the reaction of kind of a little bit of fear and panic appropriate from the game the other night against Utah? Well, I think it's fairly appropriate. I mean, they at least have the guts to go on the road and play somebody. You know, at Utah, it's not a great, you know, a great opponent, but um, you know, they did have the, the guts to do that. You know, um, I think it's hard when you have a team that's supposed to be really good and you're playing somebody that's not so good um, to get up for a game. And, you know, sometimes it's easy. You walk in like Oklahoma State did this week and, and Savannah's name is so overmatched that it got to be easy. But if the other team pushes back even a little bit, I think it, it becomes difficult to, you know, get up the energy you need to win the game. I don't think you know, they, they play... I think it's Florida A&M this week, somebody like that. So we still won't really know anything. And then in a couple of weeks after that, they play Kansas, Kansas State. State. And that's when, 
that's when we'll probably get a, a better sense of what they are. You know, I think Landry Jones is getting some of the the, the Sam Bradford. Uh, uh, you know, he's having similar stats to Bradford, and everybody knows Bradford's really good, and so they assume Landry Jones is really good. And that may or may not be true, but I think one game, even even against weak teams, probably not enough to to show that one way or the other. You know, I've heard a lot of people say already that week two is kind of a weaker slate on the college football season, but I'm sure that doesn't mean there's some interesting things to watch. What are you going to be watching this weekend? Well, I think the two big games, uh, the two games that are, are particularly inter- interesting to me are the um, the two new SEC teams playing their openers. Um, and Texas A&M plays Florida, and Georgia goes to Missouri and plays there. Of course, Georgia is by you know, model all of ours, so definitely be interested in that. But both those teams are, I mean, Missouri and Texas A&M, are going to be incredibly fired up. And so, um, you know, I, I think it's dangerous for both Georgia and Florida. Florida in particular, because they haven't looked great in two years and a week now, and they were really struggling against Bowling Green last week. Um, but also for Georgia, I mean, I, Georgia is not... You know, they're, I think they're ranked like six in the polls or seven in the polls or something like that. But I don't know that they're, you know, they, certainly nobody thinks they're as strong as Alabama and LSU. And Missouri, you know, good quarterback, you know, got the number one recruit in America, coming out at receiver. Um, that, that feels like a trap to me. And certainly feels like Missouri could put a good run on. On the flip side of that, if Georgia wins that game, convincingly, they're, you know, really in the conversation for you know, championships. You know, does Georgia, I mean, I know they won last week, but i got to imagine the mental and physical star, scars that loom just days after playing an unbelievable Buffalo program. <laughs> are they going to be okay? You know, I mean, are they, because, I, I mean, well, I'm only 10 minutes from the UB Stadium, and, I mean, they pack in at least 12000 a week down there. Luckily, Georgia didn't have to come here. And the support right. in the city is just ra- you know, rampant for them. And, I mean, it's an unbelievable program. Well, I understand that. And, and once, you know, if you play Buffalo and you come out and, and everybody's still alive, right. you know, then, then you survived and you, you've done well. And, you know, I, I, it's funny. I was walking through the hotel lobby um, before, uh, I guess, early afternoon before the Michigan-Alabama game, and they had the Georgia-Buffalo game on TV. And, you know, the first half, Buffalo's driving to make it, like, what, maybe 23-20 or something? And they kick, they ended up having to kick a field goal. And I'm like, oh, people in Athens are just dying right now. You know, and so, and Buffalo, you know, they're good, uh, solid, probably better than what a lot of teams played. Um, you know, I think one thing that came out of this week, actually, is that people are going to understand that the MAC is a pretty decent conference. Right. You know, um, Ohio obviously went to Penn State and won. Bowling Green gave Florida everything. Northern Illinois almost beat Iowa. Toledo went to overtime running against Arizona. And then Buffalo made a good showing of it against Georgia. I mean, there's, you know, that's a pretty decent conference. To watch Mac football every week is, first of all, it's entertaining football. And secondly, there, there's several good teams there. And so all props to Buffalo and your conference. 
The sportscasters are here with Tommy Tomlinson, who you can find on Twitter at Tommy Tomlinson. Since we talked to you last, the website is officially launched. Just wondering, just wanted to get your opinion on how things have gone so far. Last time when we talked, there was just kind of a soft launch that was uh, based around the Olympics. Uh, mostly it was Piznanski, but then there was some other stuff sprinkled in. What do you think of how the site looks and how the feedback has been and how things are going so far since the launch of the site? Yeah, well, the site, by the way, it's sportsonearth.com, for those of you all who haven't looked at it yet, and we would love to hear what what everybody thinks about it. Um, yeah, they're, they're the normal sort of technical glitches uh, and stuff like that. There's no way for readers to email the writers directly yet and that sort of thing. Um, you can email, there's a just a general email address, but not one for each individual writer. But um, other than that, uh, I think it's gone really well. I mean, I, I really like the crew that we put together. You know, we have the, the kind of the six full-time folks that are working there. Plus we got guys like Will Leach and um, Lee Montville and Dave Kendrick has got a regular correspondence for us, and then a bunch of other good writers who are going to be contributors. We had a great piece from Patrick Ruby last week on, you know, not being able to watch football anymore because just thinking about concussions and that sort of thing. And so we have, I think, a pretty good lineup. Um, you know, we're going to give you probably four or five pretty decent stories every day. I think some of them are going to be really great. Um, and I think if you, you know, if you look at us for a week or so, I think, um, I hope people will make us a part of their sports reading, you know, uh, environment and part of their kind of virtual bookshelf, something you have to look at every day and kind of, kind of feel like you're caught up on now the sports ball. Now, essentially, your role is going to be covering college football. Well, this weekend... Big for all, you know most United States sports sports fans. The NFL is going to be starting. Who's going to be the kind of NFL guy and the guy that we can go to to read all of the NFL stuff? Yeah, our main NFL guy is, is a wonderful uh, writer and, and thinker named Mike Panier. Uh, Mike worked uh, for Football Outsiders, the great you know, yep. analytical football site. He also has been doing a, a blog on football for the New York Times. And Mike is great. He's funny, uh, both in person and in print. He's really, really smart. He understands the NFL as well as anybody I've, I've ever met. And um, he's been putting up previews on the site. And then he'll be at the Cowboys and the Giants tomorrow night. And if you, if you read Mike, you'll understand the NFL uh, week to week. And see. So he's our main guy. I think all of us will be writing... Um, a little bit about all sorts of different things as as the years go as the year goes on. You know, I'll be writing about other things. Um, Mike will be writing about other things. Uh, we all have kind of concentrations on what we do, but we we want to mix it up. I mean, I want to write like, for example, I live in Charlotte and NASCAR uh, season is winding down, and Dale Earnhardt Jr. is back in the mix for right. a championship for the first time in eight or ten years. So I'll probably write about that as it gets a little bit closer to that season there. And I'll probably write some baseball and some basketball and stuff like that. College football is my main thing. But I think we're all going to write about a little bit of everything. We're all interested in lots of different things. 
All right, last thing. I didn't ask you this last time. So that means you got to get a free weekend before you got to answer. But uh, who do you think the two teams in the BCS final are going to be this season? Well, at, at the beginning of the year, I mean, before the season started, I thought it was going to be Oregon and LSU. Um, I'm, uh, I'm going to stick to that. Um, I, I mean, not Oregon and LSU, excuse me. Oregon and Alabama. I think LSU is going to have an off year this year. I don't know why they were in my head. But I said Oregon and Alabama um, to myself before the season starts with the one wild card team and all that being West Virginia. I think West Virginia is capable of running the table in the Big 12 and ending up against one of those two teams, probably Oregon, in the national championship game. So I would say my first pick is Oregon-Alabama. My second pick would be Oregon-West Virginia if I get to have a backup. Um, I, I, I just like the idea. I, I think if anybody's going to throw a wrench in the whole team, it could be West Virginia. And I would love to see it. You know, I'm an SEC guy, grew up an SEC fan, but it's it's time for somebody else to stand up, you know, in the rest of the country and, and make a stand against the SEC dominance. All right, it's uh, Tommy Tomlinson at Tommy Tomlinson on Twitter, and the website is www.sportsonearth.com, and I think the Twitter for the site is at Sports on Earth, correct? That's right. Yeah, so you can find uh, Tommy and Tommy's work in all those places. Thank you very much uh, for doing this and coming back kind of quickly after the first time and uh, for giving us some perspective on what went down in uh, Jerry World there. Thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Tommy. All right. I want to thank Tommy Tomlinson for joining us on the show today. Real quick book club update today. I just wanted to give one more book club update style plug to Best of Rivals, Joe Montana, Steve Young, and the inside story behind the NFL's greatest quarterback controversy by Adam Lazarus, who's going to be on the show with us in just a second. Before we bring Adam on, I just wanted to... I don't know. Adam's not in the room right now, you know, uh, and I just want to say I really like this book, and I think if you're a fan of the NFL or a fan of the San Francisco 49ers or a fan of Joe Montana and Steve Young, I think it's a book you'd really enjoy too, uh, so I give it a high recommendation. Uh, as far as the book club, we will have a book club book of the month for September. Uh, we're still waiting to hear back from publishers and get confirmation, but it looks like the book is going to be a book by Tony LaRussa, uh, his book about his life that, that he wrote with a ghostwriter, and hopefully Tony is going to have the opportunity to be on the show. We're not going to do the book if Tony isn't going to do the show, so that's what we're waiting to make sure is sure, and we should know by next week which will only be the second week of September, so no big deal. But one more time in the book club book format because we missed a couple of shows in August. I wanted to make sure I mentioned Best of Rivals, which is a really great book. And instead of me going on by myself about it, let's take a break and come back, bring in the author, and talk about the book.
Our next guest today lives in Atlanta, Georgia, and is a graduate of Kenyon College. He is a member of the Professional Football Writers of America and had his work published in ESPN the Magazine and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He has authored three books, his first about the 1973 U.S. Open, his second about Super Bowl XXV between the Bills and the Giants, and his current book, our book club Book of the Month, Best of Rivals, Joe Montana, Steve Young, and the inside story behind the NFL's greatest quarterback controversy. He's making his first appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the very talented Adam Lazarus. What's up, Adam? I'm doing well. How are you guys doing? Doing really good. And you know, I should have asked you before. It is Lazarus, right? Lazarus. But Lazarus. Okay. Right. See, I, I should have asked you that before. Of course, since I didn't, I, I, I butchered it. But Lazarus. Okay. Got it. What's up, buddy? How are you doing? I'm good. I'm excited for the NFL season to start. Yeah. Oh, we're all excited about the NFL season to start. Um, and your book, I think, comes at a perfect time uh, to kind of – it's coming out at the perfect time with, I think, fans anxious to kind of get their hands on anything NFL. And you were nice enough to send us two copies of it. And uh, the winner of the second copy sent me an email – and he said he was really excited he won because he's traveling to one of the 49ers, either the first or second road game, and he's already got it packed in his carry-on, and he's looking forward to reading it on the airplane on the way to the game. So thank you for providing second book. I'm sure the winner is looking forward to reading that on the plane ride. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad I can help out uh, 49ers fans or got nice history uh, out of this, but they also got a nice future to look forward to right now. All right, this is where I want to start. I want to tell you this. The very first thing that surprised me about this Steve Young, Joe Montana quarterback controversy is how long it was and how early in the 1980s Steve Young was already backing up. Joe Montana. See, I mean, I watched the first Super Bowl I remember watching was 1985, the the Bears Super Bowl. I remember the fridge going in and things like that, but wasn't the kind of football fan I am now, but I would have never put two and two together that Steve Young was backing up Joe Montana the day that they did what they did to Denver in that Super Bowl in New Orleans. It just was real surprising to me how long it took Steve Young to get out of that shadow. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's a key part of the story, and, and one of the reasons why I'm not sure anything like this would ever happen again is because it's pre-unrestricted free agency. You know, that comes about in uh, spring of 93. So uh, at that time, anything after that, a quarterback in that situation would have been able to, you know, go somewhere else and do whatever he wanted, um, and Steve Young couldn't do that. Teams who wanted Steve Young inquired about him. Um, obviously, you know he was such a great player that people wanted a, a crack at him. And Montana was still doing his thing, so there was a sense that you know, he's available. But he wasn't really available because the 49ers asked for you know a, a mountain in return. They wanted you know two first-round picks and everything, and so it made it really hard for them to trade him. So Young had really no choice. But the other thing about that is. And it was something that Young echoed to me, and he said, you know, a lot throughout those years, was he couldn't wait to get his opportunity with that team, with that offense, with Kerry Rice, with John Taylor, with Brent Jones. So it was sort of a catch-22 for him. He didn't want to leave because he wanted, he knew what he could do in that system, 
but he wanted to play. And every year that Montana went to the Pro Bowl was another year he wasn't going to play. So you're absolutely right that the length of the controversy and his waiting is really unusual and would probably never happen again today. I was so excited to talk to you about that aspect of the book that we kind of got a little ahead of ourselves in the sense that I usually almost ask every author this, and I'm very curious for you, what drew you to this project? Like, where did the idea come from? What drew you to writing this book? Well, I think um, something that, and we've definitely seen it this summer and this preseason, uh, that's such a big storyline in the NFL every year is the quarterback controversy. And I would never in a million years say that Tim Tebow, Mark Sanchez is anything like uh, Steve Young, Joe Montana, or you know, Russell Wilson, Matt Flynn, Tavares Jackson is anything like that. Or, you know, God forbid, John Skelton, Kevin Cobb. But <laughs> that is a big story every year, and people are always looking for a quarterback controversy, especially on teams that aren't winning. Or um, you know when a player is aging or a free agent, you know the team comes in and pays a lot of money or spends a high draft pick. Um, so that's sort of a recurring theme I think we see in the NFL every year. And it was just something that I, you know I was curious um, what what stories are out there like that. And it doesn't take long to get to Montana Young when you're thinking of quarterback controversies. It really um, it's nothing like it in NFL history, even, and it's a modern story, and it's only 20 years ago. It's not something from the 60s or anything like that. So that's sort of what drew And sort of like you said, um, that I'm from that generation uh, of going up late 80s, early 90s, the NFL being what it is today, you know, sort of on track to being the biggest sport in the world. Um, and Montana was really the star of that whole period, and Young becomes a star of that same magnitude, and I think I wanted to do something in that era because it was sort of the uh, what got me interested in football when I was sort of growing up. How was your access? Were Montana, you, you mentioned you did talk to Young, uh, were Montana, Young, the organization, key players in the book, were they into this? Were some people that talked to you maybe, all right, I'll do it, but you got 10 minutes or like what was the overall will- willingness to for people to recall the story obviously you couldn't get walsh but just mm-hmm. in general well, um i would i could probably write a book on just getting interviews with montana and young because that was a whole process in itself um i don't think you know it, it's to them it's a touchy subject uh even though this book really i think takes it and spins it in a real positive way um, I think it was a touchy subject for both those guys. So getting Young and Montana to talk, which I was really fortunate to do, um, was a big part of, you know, it was, it was tough because I don't think either one of them, I think either both of them have a sour taste in their mouth to some extent about that period. Um, I don't think, you know, it tarnishes what they achieved and, and especially their careers in San Francisco. But I do think it's a touchy subject for them. And that, in a way ends up trickling down a little bit, I think. So the guys who were close to Montana and to Young both think that that subject, you know, maybe I don't want to go on the record with this because it's touchy to them, but uh, most of the guys were willing to, you know, Jerry Rice, um, Brent Jones, Steve Bono, um, I'm trying to think who else just off the top of my head, uh, Roger Craig, I have this fortunate to have George Seifert. Um, so most of those guys, uh, I think they were willing to talk about it um, when I sort of... Uh, 
talk to them about, you know, this is more than just a story about, you know, a scandal kind of story, because that's sort of one way to spin it, right. was, you know, that's a lot of, I think a lot of the people who've talked about this on record, maybe not close to the situation, sort of did put the sexy angle to it, that, oh, Montana didn't like Young, Young didn't like Montana, and while that is sort of something that has to be addressed in the book, uh, I don't think that's the overarching theme of this story, you know, the, the key thing here is that one of the key things here is that the competition bred success for both guys. Um, so it, it wasn't all about, you know, this personality conflict, which I think a lot of people made it out to be. So, when, you know, when I sort of addressed that with them, a lot of guys were more willing. But a lot of guys were just willing to talk about it in general because, you know, they were around at that time and they wanted to give their perspective. And um, I don't think it was a case of there being, I wanted to be, I wanted to talk positively about Steve Young or because of Montana or vice versa. I think it was just a lot of those guys, you know, a lot of those guys just wanted to talk about their careers anyway So and, and the intersections they had with great players. So um, I did was very fortunate to have a lot of very good access. You know, one thing that was really interesting to me is we always talk about how the game has changed and how uh, for quarterbacks and wide receivers that – the ball just flies all over the place now, obviously with the crazy amount of yards that were thrown last season is a good example of that. But I think one thing we overlook a little bit is how the rules have evolved to protect the quarterbacks because one thing that really amazed me in the book is what an absolute beating Joe Montana took over the course of his career and really how tough he had to be to be on the field to accomplish the things that he accomplished. Absolutely, that is a huge part of the. It's a huge part of the book, but it's also a huge part of the story because this book, this story never happens if it isn't for the, like you said, the beatings Montana took in 1986. Montana gets the, well. It's, it's actually kind of ironic because he injures his back in a way that people say you may never play football again. This is 86. This is two years before he wins his second Super, his third Super Bowl. Uh, so he gets this back injury. It was it was non-contact, but it was it had been brewing from contacts you know years before. Uh, he gets this back injury that people tell him he may never play again. His, his season's definitely over. His career may be over. It turns out his season wasn't over because he gets back on the field after nine weeks and um, gets the 49ers to the playoffs and, and they play the Giants. And in one of the more famous hits in NFL history, uh, Jim Burt knocks him out of the game and, and he has this concussion and he spends the night in the hospital. And those two injuries that Montana suffers that year sort of get this story started with the 49ers looking at, at Montana and the organization and saying, you know, we may need to have a backup plan and a good backup plan for Joe. And the other side of that coin is that the 49ers tell, Monta tell Young, who's sort of being shopped around, um, Montana may never play again. You come here, you'll have his job in a year or so, maybe even sooner. Um, bring, come on over, and, and he does. So that sort of gets the story started. But like you said, Montana's, it, it's so interesting because it's really, he, he's looked at as really fragile. Um, he was 185, 190 pounds really at best. Uh, and he takes these hits, and he, he, he's knocked out of games. He misses games. He misses parts of seasons. So he's really fragile, but he bounces back and comes back so many times. And he survived in the NFL for a really long time under a really pretty small frame. So he was really fragile but incredibly durable at the same time, which is sort of weird juxtaposition. Um, and that's the key thing is that Montana never – he really never gives up. Uh, they have to – 
you can't keep him off the field. And that's sort of one of the more amazing things about Montana is his ability to come back from these injuries. Um, and what that does to Steve Young is every time Montana misses a few games and it looks like he's going to go uh, take his job permanently, Montana comes back in, in some ways better than ever. So, like you said, the, the injuries, especially to Montana in those uh, before he gets his elbow injury, which is sort of a key part of the story, are um, something that make this situation so much more complex. Yeah, you know, I think we think of quarterbacks today. We think of you know Brett Favre and the unbelievable streak that he had, and you know Peyton Manning before last year, never missing a game, and. You know, Drew Brees w- with the Saints not really missing any games after his big one big injury of the last week. And I think we think of quarterbacks like that now, but we don't realize that just not too long ago in NFL history, this great 49ers dynasty might not have happened if it was in the salary cap era because, like you said, Steve Young might have been elsewhere and the 49ers might have had uh, the 1987 version of Colin Kaepernick in those games, and mm-hmm. it might not have worked out the same, you know? Yeah, I know you're absolutely right. Um, just to touch on your first point, uh, he said about how Favre and Manning and, and Breeze and those guys, and, you know, Brady for the most part, aside yeah, from yeah, the the one when year. he hurt his knee, yeah. those guys really never miss a game. It's kind of interesting, not to get too technical about it, but... Montana, I guess, really hated lifting weights, and that was something he talked about. He was on NFL, he was on ESPN the other a couple a week ago, and he talked about how pretty much he hated lifting weights, and they had to. It sounded like they had to drag him into the weight room, and I think that was probably part of it. Um, maybe that's one of the reasons why he wasn't quite as durable, or is what did suffer those injuries. Um, but more to the point about the backup and the value of having a great backup, the 49ers, you know, one of the most memorable moments in Super Bowl history is Montana's touchdown to John Taylor in Super Bowl 23 against the Bengals. The 49ers probably don't make the playoffs in 88, which is that year, if they don't beat the Vikings in late October in a game that Montana misses. Um, And they only win that game because if Youngs has this incredible touchdown run at the end of the game, this uh, 49-yard touchdown run where he runs away from everybody and runs over guys, and it's this incredible play. Uh, they don't make the playoffs if they don't win that game, and they don't win that Super Bowl, which is one of Montana's greatest, you know, snapshot moments. Um, so, it, like you said, the backup quarterback that they had, they were so fortunate to have that insurance policy, which was problematic because it, it gave Montana, it gave Young this chance to showcase his skills. But as soon as Montana came back, he was back on the bench. So, like you said, it, you know, we see today a guy just like um, Matt Flynn with the with the Packers. I guess it was. In uh, two, it was last year or the year before, he came in and had a great game. Uh, th- it was this year against Detroit, and right. that yep. gave last him the opportunity the to have you know showcase his skills in a game, a regular season game. Um, and he he cashed it in, and he got out to go out to Seattle and get the big contract. Young couldn't do that, um, so it speaks to like you said, sort of an earlier era where there was sort of a stockpiling of talent. The Forty ers were lucky to have done that. You know, it's interesting, and I don't want to. It's it's tricky because I I don't I want people to be able to read about where it kind of turns in terms of being Montana's team to Young's team, but it's interesting how it is somewhat surrounded by the events leading up to Super Bowl twenty five, which is one of your other books 
mm-hmm. is about Super Bowl twenty five, and I kind of found that interesting. Well, I, I guess I'll break a spoiler alert a little bit, but um, yeah, that that ninety one in, in early ninety one, Montana has that in, gets knocked out of the NFC Championship game against the Giants, and you know if he doesn't get knocked out of the game, who knows? Maybe they do go to the Super Bowl, maybe they don't. Everyone in Buffalo, I can tell you this: I was I was in Buffalo. Uh-huh. Then you know, I was 11 years old, whatever. But everyone here thought the Bills had already won during the day. Going into that game, everyone was already talking about Bills and 49ers. Yeah, there that was, was an well, a person I know from, in Buffalo from that book that I wrote that that's all. Yeah. they had signs in California, in Tampa already for 49ers Bills that uh, they were expecting it for the three peat, and it was going to be you know the epic showdown, and it was a lot of letdown that the Giants got there. Um, like you said, it's, but that's sort of, I guess, a mis, misconception a little bit is that you know people looking at it 10 or 20 years later was that Montana got knocked out of that game against the Giants, and that paved the way for Young to take over, which isn't really the case because he recovered from that injury. Um, he wouldn't have played in that Super Bowl, that's for sure, but he recovered from it and was ready for the, pre-se- ready for the regular season and the preseason, and they go, he plays a preseason game in, in Germany, um, but then he comes back and, and just tweaks his elbow, just throwing a pass. And that sets this chain of events off that Montana has this just nag, terribly nagging elbow injury that has requires multiple surgeries and opens the door for Young to go over and take his job, uh, which sort of leads to a total nightmare for the 49ers going into the 92 season when Montana is ready to, or going into the 93 season when Montana's fully healthy again, or they think at least, and Young's coming off of an MVP season. So that's sort of um, where the story takes another uh, unexpected turn, I guess you would say. You know, Peyton Manning's Super Bowl victory comes to mind, and maybe a couple others, but do you think a Super Bowl victory like the one that Steve Young had in 1995 has ever meant as much as that did to an individual quarterback in terms of professional fulfillment? Yeah, I don't know if there's another. I mean, Peyton Manning would probably be a good. Um, that one comes to mind. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think Peyton Manning, just because it had been, there was so much expected of him. But like you said, Young's win in Super Bowl. I remember watching the the NBA playoffs in June, and the talk about LeBron having to win the championship and having to win. And if he didn't, what what it was going to mean to his legacy for a second, you know, third time in eight years or whatever it was. And then when he finally wins, the crazy amount of vindication stories that were out there, it was the same way for Young in, in 94 and in that 95 Super Bowl. Uh, because I think it's kind of a combination of two things. It was replacing a legend. It was replacing Montana, who was the example of winning Super Bowls. And it was also just the 49ers fans' expectations of, you know, you're a bum if you don't win a Super Bowl. And then the other half of it is, Young's the promise of, of Steve Young, just the everything that was expected of him. He was such a great player in college, and he goes to the USFL, and they give him this record-setting deal because he's the best player in the world. Um, that doesn't work out. They go, he goes to Tampa, and a lot of people looked at him as a savior in Tampa, and he couldn't be because Tampa Bay was Tampa Bay the way they were in the 80s. Right. So there was just so much expected of him, and you couple the fact that he's replacing Montana in ironically in a stadium that Montana had won a Super Bowl the last time it was there. So there was no more amount of pressure on Young to win that Super Bowl than than that game. And, and like you said, the the fulfillment at the end of it and which is you know, that famous 
get the monkey off my back comment. Um, there really, there probably isn't anything else like it in NFL history. And I think the picture in the book is perfect of him, like on the podium, hugging the Super Bowl or the Super Bowl trophy, the Vince Lombardi trophy, and he's just got this look on his face, like, "Oh man, it's over." You know, like finally, it's just a great, great picture. Yeah, he was. There's the video of it. I mean, it's obviously even better. He's just sort of like clutching it and swaying it back and forth. One of the writers I talked to, who uh, who was in the locker room that they talked about, you know, he treated it like he was his newborn infant, you know, sort of swaddling in his arms. So that was I, absolutely it was sort of you know the symbol of everything that he had gone through because uh, I mean he had only been it had only been three years really four years really if you think about it ninety one to ninety five to ninety four that he had taken over from Montana because the years before were sort of this stand-in role that he occasionally had. So there had only been four years, but in those four years, he wins MVPs. He takes the team to the top, to the NFC title game two years in a row. He, he, sets, he becomes the first man to win three passing titles in a row. So he achieves so much, and nobody cares because he doesn't win an MVP, which is crazy to think about. But I, I guess it's, it's similar to what Peyton Manning went through, that he was winning MVPs and nobody really cared because he couldn't beat the Patriots. So it was the same way for Young that – the only thing that mattered was winning a Super Bowl. The Sportscasters are here with Adam Lazarus, the author of the Sportscasters Book Club Book of the Month, Best of Rivals, Joe Montana, Steve Young, and the inside story behind the NFL's greatest quarterback controversy. And I guess one thing that we should do is just give us uh, an anecdote for maybe some of the listeners who haven't read the book yet or haven't had a chance to catch the book that you think really represents why this is a, a fun book to read? Well, I think um, the quarterback controversy between Young and Montana really lasts just from 87 to 92. So the way that you look at it from them butting heads on the same team sort of competing for the same job is only 87 to 92. But the story really doesn't end there because, like we were talking earlier, um, about Young's need to win a Super Bowl and Montana's need to prove that he could still play. I think the controversy sort of takes a new spin when they when Montana does get traded to Kansas City and Young is in San Francisco. So there's sort of a new le- new sort of angle to it that they're not on the same team and they're not competing for the same job, but they're really they are competing in a way. You know, Young was always going to be measured by Montana, and kind of in a way, Montana was going to be measured by what Young did. So the second, the sort of the last part of the book is the two years where Montana's in Kansas City and, and Young's in San Francisco, and they're both trying to you know, take their team to the Super Bowl. But that starts with the 49ers having to unload Montana to sort of pave the way for Young to take over in a, in a sort of permanent way. So in 93, in, in April 93, the 49ers come to a tough decision that they have to get rid of Joe Montana, which is painful for the organization. Um, and they get set to trade Montana, and they come to an arrangement where Montana can sort of choose wherever he wants to go. So they get a deal in place to change to trade Montana, and then at the last minute, the the organization that the owner who was just so close to Montana basically um, convinces Montana to not accept the trade for the 49ers to bail on the trade, and Montana is going to stay in San Francisco. And not and basically compete with Young for another year, uh, and so this back and forth that the Forty ers organization does is it's really comical in a way, which I think readers um, will get a kick out of the way it happened. But it's also sort of emblematic of just how tied 
the organization was to Joe Montana and in a way the city of San Francisco because I don't think there's another sports figure in the history of the city that was so near and dear to their heart as Joe Montana was. So the way this is, I think, chapter beginning of Chapter 10, uh, so fan, people who read it will sort of get a kick out of that, but just the way they just try to trade Montana and can't is a really interesting story, um, and it's really one of the weirdest stories, I think, in the history of trades and you know transactions in the NFL that you'll ever see because um, there was so much emotion involved on both sides, and it led to just a really weird bizarre kind of state of the 49ers at that time. You know, uh, I just want to mention a few things here. You can you can follow Adam on Twitter. It's at L-A-Z-A-R-U-S-A-57. And he also has a website, which is www.alazarus.com. And I want to make sure you go to those places. But, I mean, as far as finding the book, it's very easy to do. You can uh, read you can find it in bookstores or you can find it in the digital formats. What do you think about the kind of move to books being read on things like Kindles and iPads and things like that? That's interesting. I mean, I don't really know. I don't have an iPad or a Kindle. I'm, I still prefer to read books in the hard copy version, um, but I, I think I was one of those people who said I would never do Twitter also. Right. Uh, so I think it's – I'll probably – move to that format sooner or later. Although I still don't know exactly, you know, there's some, something about carrying a book and having, you know, the pages in your hand and everything that I guess there's probably will always be um, sort of holdovers from that. But it, it does make uh, things a lot simpler. If you want to take three or four books with you somewhere, it's certainly a lot easier to carry that, to carry one of those tablets than it is, uh, you know, a book bag full of books. Well, you've written a book about golf, you've written a book about Super Bowl 25, and now you've, you've written a book about uh, this quarterback controversy. Are there things starting to percolate in your head about what you might want the next book to be about? Um, there, I have some ideas here and there. Uh, waiting for the right story, I guess. Waiting for the right figure or, or situation to write about. Um, but I guess I, the th- sort of the theme in all my books is... Um, the sort of the, the storyline is important, but I, the characters are really what what's driven all the books I've written, um, and not just the you know the football side of it or the sports side and their careers, but also the personalities. And um, so the right person would be the right uh, would be my next project. I guess that's the thing about this Montana Young book that uh, sort of I think is the most compelling part of it is even if it's not necessarily a sports story, which it is. Um, you know, game to game and Super Bowls and touchdown passes to Jerry Rice and everything. But the thing that's so compelling to me is how different Montana and Young were. Um, and you don't get that without writing about their character and, and who they were growing up and uh, sort of their, you know, what they believed in. Not necessarily like politically or anything like that, but just sort of their approach to teammates and life and, and playing and everything. And that was the thing that I, I really loved about this story was how different Montana and Young were in every way except for the one way that I guess is most important for a quarterback is sort of leadership and, you know, desire and, and um, willingness to, you know, sacrifice everything to, to win for your team. So that was sort of one of the key things that I would be looking for in the next kind of book I do. With the NFL getting ready to kick off a new season this year, will you, do you look 
do you watch the games now through a different set of eyes in the sense that do you follow the season looking to see if there might be that character that could interest you or that storyline that could maybe evolve into a fourth project? Um, that's a, I mean, that's difficult to do today, I think, because of everything that's out there. Um, I think the Montana Young story, and this is something that sort of the guys, the beat writers told me, was they couldn't imagine that happening today with the amount of coverage and the, the opinions out there uh, that about who, you know, taking up sides and, and the minutia of the tiniest details that are, you know, a lot of the time totally nonsense. Um, so I think we get lost in a lot of those extra details now and again in today's NFL. Um, like, I guess they're talking about now, like, Mark Sanchez is dating Ava Longoria, and will that be a distraction for him? <laughs> like, will that lead to this, open the door for Tim Tebow to take his job? I think it's, so some of those things, I guess, oversaturate you. Uh, but the other half is, I mean, there's always going to be stories and people in the NFL and any sport that people are going to want to write about and people are going to want to read about um, for personal reasons or, you know, just the story of their, you know, struggle to get on the field and become a starter or something like that. So I guess I look at it with a, a little bit of take everything with a grain of salt when you're watching it, but still there's, there is there are people like that out there in today's NFL and today's sports. Adam, thanks a lot uh, for doing this and being a part of the Sportscasters Book Club Book of the Month. I mentioned the Twitter. It's L-A-Z-A-R-U-S-A-57. Mention the website. Anything else that you want to mention to the listeners? Any appearances coming up or anything like that that you want to throw out? Yeah, I'm actually going up to uh, San Francisco next week to do some signings. Um, some of the bookstores, I'll be doing some TV and radio out there, uh, Comcast Sports, Bay Area, um, some of the radio shows out there, and I would just say check my Twitter or my website, www.alazarus.com, like you said, um, for all the information there, and anybody interested in the book can also pick up the book at one of those signings uh, that I'll be doing out there. All right, thanks a lot, man. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Talk to you soon. Football, what? What good quarterback has been on a team that has held him back? You know what I mean? Like, it seems like a team is football is all about the quarterbacks. Like the Saints were never any good until Breeze got there. I mean, they had a few okay years with like Brooks and right. stuff like that, and but that was about it. They were okay. And then they had horrible years because they had guys like Billy Joe Tolliver. Right. And it's even more true now. It's about the. It's Please so it. rare that there's teams like Baltimore and Tampa Bay. And I don't think Baltimore could do that today. No, probably not. I mean, that was still in the year 2000. That's still 12 years ago now. The closest thing to that is San Francisco. And San Francisco has a number one draft and, pick at quarterback. And, and they couldn't get it done. Right. They did their best. And I bet they'd be. All right, we have to thank our guests for being on the show today, Chris, Tommy, and Adam, uh, making this a great podcast. Uh, a little bit long, but 
It's football, man. Football kickoff. It's going to be a long football kickoff weekend. And you know what's going to really suck? So we're going to get that taste on Wednesday. And then <laughs> there's going to be two days of work left, plus a lousy college football day on Saturday. So right in those days, that's where you can be kind of just chipping away at your Sportscasters week. That's right. So, uh, again, thanks to Adam, Tommy, and Chris for being on the show today. Don't forget episode number 31, still on our website with Jane Levy, uh, Jim Trotter, and uh, Jeff Perlman. And don't forget to check us out at www.footballnation.com. Great podcast this week. We have an interview with Kenny Albert, who is calling the Redskins and Saints game on Sunday. So we're lucky enough to have Kenny on our Football Nation show this week. Yeah, for sure. Go check it out over there. Comment on the on the page. Get our hits up over there. This is uh this is the real deal now. Football starting. We want a, a lot of traffic over there, Football Nation. Yeah, we need to get paid. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, hit up the Football Nation show. Don't forget to uh, check us out at www.facebook.com slash the sportscasters. Find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. Email us anytime, thesportscasters at gmail.com. Our blogs are at sportscasters.blogspot.com and thesportscasters.tumblr.com. And you can find all this on our website at www.sports-casters.com. Last thing to do today is pick four. And two weeks ago, Don and I kicked ass. Uh, I went three and one to improve to 77 and 56. Won the game of the week, Oakland over Tampa Bay, four to two. Had my pitcher, Carstens uh, and the Pirates beat the Brewers four to nothing, and I won a crazy uh, three-team parlay, bold prediction, preseason style: Panthers plus three <laughs> over the Jets, Rams plus five over the Cowboys, and Packers minus three. The Bengals hit them all. Bam! Just like that. That's impressive in the preseason. But I lost Jaguars plus seven over the Ravens uh, in my. Host, host choice, choice or whatever. So that game was 48-17. Jaguars didn't quite show up the way they did against the Saints. So 3-1 and one for me. Don also went 3-1 and one to improve to 69-66. and 66. He also won the Oakland over Tampa game. He won the Panthers plus 3 over the Jets, 17-12. And Cole Hamels, pitcher he saved for last, won over the Reds, 4-3. Only loss is he thought the Bills' first team offense would have three TDs. They had one, a one-yard run by Fred Jackson. Yep, not close there. Um, the game of the week this week, this is when the picks get good. Uh, this is like uh, the lead pipe why the, of the week. This is why we created pick four. Yeah, right? you can see is how we would be do able to do this. If we had uh, money to gamble away in Vegas on these games, getting back to point spreads and all that fun stuff. Game of the week this week, of course, is tomorrow's game. That's Wednesday. The Cowboys at the Giants, Super Bowl champions. Uh, Wednesday, 8.30 on NBC. Giants are a four-point favorite here. I think the Cowboys are a little bit too banged up right away, especially in the offensive line. As I said earlier, the Giants' defensive line is just too good. And, I mean, Eli in the offense, I think, got enough to get it done. So give me the Giants minus four. Yeah, and I, I was thinking about this spread, and I was thinking, you know, all right, so Vegas gives the Giants three points for being, at, for home, being at home, and then one point because f- it's banner night, right? So and then I started, really even. and then I started thinking about it, and I'm like, well, the home team has won this game every single time really? since the NFL started doing this. Huh. 
starting on a Thursday, this case a Wednesday, at the home city of the, of the defending winner. Super Bowl winner. Home teams won every single time, including the Saints over the Vikings. You had the Saints were the defending Super Bowl champions, including last year when the Packers beat the Saints. They were right, the right. Def- defending Super Bowl champions. And I thought what you thought, and that was, are the Cowboys ready week one to go and break those traditions down with a banged-up offensive line, wide receiver core that might not be quite ready, running back who broke his ankle and hasn't played a meaningful game since, against a team who knows how to get to the quarterback and harass the quarterback, and Tony Romo isn't as good of a player when he's on his ass. That's true of every quarterback. So like you, I'm going to lay the four points and take the Giants. All right, my worldwide leader pick this week, I'm going to go with the uh, Sunday primetime game. It's 820 on NBC, Steelers at the Broncos. I think Peyton's got something to prove. The Broncos are a one-point favorite. The Broncos were a division winner last year with Tim Tebow. Uh, I like the receivers there in Decker and Thomas. So give me the Broncos minus the one. I didn't have the guts. No? I didn't have the guts to take that game. I just stayed away. I didn't know. Um so props to you. I went what I think is the easy way out, and I took the second Monday night football game, Chargers and Raiders. I was stunned to see the Chargers only being one-point favorites. I know that it's in Oakland. Yeah. But excuse me for not thinking that the Oakland County Coliseum is that tough <laughs> of a place to play. I know it's got a cool nickname and everything. It's not exactly bl- Arrowhead, you're saying? No, yeah. and I'll get to that in a second. But no, not at all. Uh, I'm gonna take. The, I'll gladly take the Chargers minus one. Uh, that game is Monday night at 10:15 on ESPN, and I'll, I'll take that all day. Yeah, my host choice this week is another team that I'm a little bit surprised isn't a bigger favorite. It's New England at Tennessee. It's a one o'clock game on CBS. New England is a six-point favorite on the road, and in a year where just about everybody's picking New England to go to the Super Bowl, if not maybe, I don't know, Houston or Baltimore or somebody, uh, a six-point favorite against like a rising team, I guess you would say. Maybe Tennessee can surprise some people. But Lots still, of questions there, though. Yeah, starting uh, not a rookie quarterback but a young quarterback. New England's defense sounds like it should be better this year. They made a lot of draft picks on the defensive side. And my biggest thought is New England doesn't just beat people. They blow people out when they win games. They have no problem running up the score. And Tennessee is a team that seems right for the picking as far as, okay, you might be a team on the rise a little bit, but we're going to show you that we're just a better team and we're a team that's ready to win a Super Bowl. So maybe you rise against the next team. Six points, I'll lay that all day. That's less than a touchdown, duh. But uh, that's two field goals isn't enough for me to scare scare me away from New England. All right, uh, I'm going to take some points for a home team. Uh, the Chiefs and Falcons play on Sunday at one o'clock. It's on Fox because Atlanta's the road team and they're favored, three point favorite on the road. And I know Atlanta is considered to be a team that maybe can make the jump this year. Yeah, everyone loves Matt Ryan and those receivers. And the Chiefs had a bad year last year, but remember, by like week three, their three or four best players were 
out for the year. They lost their quarterback, yeah. Eric Berry, and their Jamal Charles. So, I mean, that Chiefs team we saw last year, I don't think is representative of what we're going to see this year. I think that they can win that division. I think for sure it's going to be them or the Broncos, one of those two teams. I yeah. like a lot in that division. Uh, maybe that's not saying much. But I'd love to get three points on opening day in Arrowhead. And I'll do it all day. I, I think this Chiefs team is going to be pumped to be able to play with the team that they think they are. Right. You know, not the team that they were all season handcuffed by some of the worst injury luck I've seen in the National Football League in all the years I've watched it. Yeah, I'm in a couple pick em leagues, and I think I picked them straight up. So, yeah, to get some points is, is a nice bonus. Uh, my last game, bold prediction, um, I'm going homer here. The Jets are a three-point favorite. I don't believe they scored a touchdown in the preseason. The Bills' defense looks improved. The Bills have given Sanchez troubles in the past, even mm-hmm. when they weren't any good. And Stevie Johnson is good against Rivas. He's yeah, had he has been more good against Rivas. Uh, I don't expect it to be a high-scoring game. The Jets' defense is still the Jets' defense. But I'm going to flip the... Uh, I'm going to flip and double the spread. I'm going to take the Bills minus six for my bold prediction. Like it. Uh, I thought about doing another three-team parlay here, but I really wanted to do a prop, and I wanted to make it up myself. So I was like thinking about how I could do this, and I started thinking about – I got sidetracked and started thinking about my starts for fantasy football. When I was looking at the quarterbacks, I was thinking, all right, in most fantasy football leagues this year – Tom Brady, Drew Brees, Matt Stafford, and Aaron Rodgers were all first-round picks. Maybe Matt Stafford slipped to the second round in some drafts. But probably, if you got Brady, Stafford, or Roger, or Brady, Brees, or Rodgers on your team, you need to spend a first-round pick on them. Right. So I'm going to take all four of those quarterbacks, put them together, and set the over-under at 12 TDs for week one, and I'm going to take the over throwing only. So three throwing TDs for each guy. Or someone gets four or something. Right. Two. Yeah, that's pretty bold, I would say. And and throwing only. Especially in, like, Rogers' case, who might run a couple in. Right. I don't get credit for that. Gotcha. Got to throw it. That's fun. Yeah, so that's, I thought, kind of a fun one. Brady, Breeze, Stafford, and Rogers over 12 passing TDs. All right, let's kick the ball off and do this. Yeah, that's it. Thank you for being on the show today. Don't forget www.sports-casters.com and www.footballnation.com for an interview with Kenny Albert. We're out. All right. <laughs>